Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey Feldman, and I'm joined with my co-hosts, Steve Gutenberg. Hey, hey. And review dude, Josh Brolin. <laughs> I'll take Josh Brolin, that, that works. We're all 80s actors today. Nice. As we are covering a 1987 movie, one of the most remembered movies of the 80s, RoboCop, of course. I wanted to ask you guys, what are your favorite Paul Verhoeven movies outside of RoboCop? I'm going to say you have to pick one. Josh, you go first. Oh, shit, pressure. I'm going to, if I have to pick one, I'm going to go Total Recall. Although I will say Hollow Men's a little underrated. Dude, I love Total Recall. It's so fucking awesome. Practical effects, just like the feel of it, the classic like Arnold 80s yeah. style. <laughs> the the prosthetics and everything, is, it's, it's all around just awesome. I agree. What about you, Steve? I mean, it, it, for me, it's down to Total Recall or Basic Instinct, and I'm honestly not sure which of the two of them I really like more. I mean, Total Recall might get a slight edge for me just because the extra effects work and the coolness of the whole project. I, th I think I'll go with Total Recall, but Basic Instinct is a really close second for me, along with, with this film, obviously. And then it's, you know, Starship Troopers gets an honorable mention in there. Well, oh, I'm going to yeah. give it the, the answer that you guys are thinking but don't want to say of Showgirls. Showgirls is definitely one of my favorite movies. Despite the rank review we gave it, I, I really do kind of oddly enjoy getting punched in the gut by that movie every time I watch it. <laughs> Must be weird not having someone come on you. Come on you. <laughs> That's good. Cool. Where are you from, Steve? Different places. Different places. <laughs> oh, you're not allowed to ask me that question, Corey. Uh, so... Verhoeven, obviously, I bring him up because he directed this movie, RoboCop, a movie on a $13 million budget that was very successful. It made $53 million at the box office. Pretty good, especially for an R-rated movie, although R-rated movies, I think, were potentially more profitable then than they are now. They, You know, the, a lot of the people involved with that actually kind of pitch it the other way. I, I think it was... Oh, crap, I'm going to have difficulty remembering exactly who said what, because I've gone through a lot of bonus material at this movie the last uh, 48 <laughs> hours. But um, uh, Michael Miner or, or Ed Newmeyer, somebody who was involved with the with the film, um, was talking about how uh, our films at the time were actually kind of hard to market in one of the featurettes and that they were willing to go R with this movie, but that was already kind of a challenge. And they ended up having to re-edit this film many many times it was 12 or 14 times i think just to get murphy's death sequence down to the point where the mpaa would would not give it an x so yeah i don't know if you guys know this the original script was a judge dread movie that they changed around so much and eventually that it just became robocop so i i've read that story but i've also read and heard that that's an urban myth and it, it, I'm not trying to shit on you, but it, it, it does run counter to what Newmeyer and, and Miner, who wrote the film together, have both said about it. Um, Way to call me a liar, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> right? No. Well, you know, and you know, actually, we'll cut to cover this as we go over it, but I, I double checked like IMDb for Tree and stuff while I was watching through. I watched seriously like six and a half hours worth of featurette <laughs> stuff about this movie. Nice. And, um, well, I just want to say to the audience, 
Steve was probably going to be doing that anyway. Yeah, I was. I was absolutely doing that <laughs> it anyway. It wasn't for this podcast. No, no. Some of it I'd watched several days ago, just <laughs> incidentally. But, uh, um, and I, I, there were there were multiple instances, both on Wikipedia and on IMDb, of, of a trivia piece they've posted running at least partly counter to what the people who actually worked on the film had to say about it. Um, Miner has said that he started off with an idea about um, uh, a cop who was put into some kind of a robotic body or robotic suit, but that the suit eventually drives him insane. Um, that was his starting point. And he ended up meeting uh, Michael or Ed Newmeyer, who at the time was an executive at 20th Century Fox and hated being an executive at 20th Century Fox, wanted to leave and, and, and really make movies. And um, Newmeyer had been working on Fox's lot while they were shooting Blade Runner. And according to the story he tells, this is actually one of these instances. IMDb claims that Newmeyer helped out on the Blade Runner side. Newmeyer never makes mention himself of ever having worked on that side. The story he tells is that while he was walking around on the lot one day, he and one of the other executives stopped and watched them film part of Blade Runner and had a conversation about it. And Newmeyer came up with the idea of a robot cop that hunts people, which is kind of the reverse of what Blade Runner is, it, it, aside from the questions about Deckard. So Newmeyer gets to get, has this idea. He gets together with Miner, who's already had this idea about a cop in a robotic body who's slowly being driven insane by the robotics. And according to the two of them, they coalesced those two ideas together with a lot of other things like like corporate predatory or ca predatory capitalism and the relationships between companies and people and blah 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 and that that's really according to them that's where the idea came from. Was Verhoeven a writer on this as well? Um, Verhoeven got some things rewritten, just from a as directors do though. Yeah, exactly. Like he was not not originally they, they Orion well Newmeyer and, and Miner. Let's take take it back to here. Newmeyer and Miner took this script to. To Fox in the Columbia, I think, is what they said, and both studios rejected it. The rumor is is that basically every studio rejected it, and they, they ended up taking it to Orion after they had a completed script. And Orion, or somebody took it to Orion on their behalf, I think is what happened. And Orion ended up buying it. Um, the guy who was in charge of Orion at the time was this dude, Mike Medavoy, who was who had greenlit a lot of big projects. And... Um, Orion was operating under this this what they called the United Artists model, which the idea was supposed to be that the studio executives have very little to do with actually developing the movie. Um, they, they make suggestions, they instigate some rewrites, but for the most part, the producer, the writers, the talent are left to develop the film pretty much on their own. So they Orion bought this this script from Miner and Newmeyer basically as it was, and uh, Verhoeven had never directed an American movie before. But his most recent production was was a movie that Orion, I think, distributed in the United States. It's a movie I think is called Flesh and Blood, and um, they sent they sent Verhoeven the original script, and Verhoeven read. Well, okay, this is another one of those instances. Verhoeven tells a slightly different version of the story than what's frequently recanted on the internet, but. The, the more famous version of this story is that Verhoeven read something like the first three pages of it and hated it so much that he literally just chucked it in the trash. And his wife was a professional psychoanalyst, and somehow she found it. She found it sitting in the trash. She's like, I wonder what this is for. She read the script, and she, she took it back to Paul and said, you need to reread this. I think you just don't understand what it is. And he's even admitted that at the time, like, 
he'd never done an American movie. He didn't understand a lot of the American slang. Like, he didn't really quite get it when he first um, read it. And one thing a lot of people involved in this movie, including Kurtwood Smith and Mike Miguel Ferrer, have said in interviews over the years, is that they all initially thought this was really going to be a B-movie. None of them none of them anticipated it would be anything more than a B-film. So Well, it's... I just want to say, like, surface level, it is. It is. It is. Absolutely. And, I mean, everyone... Every internet reviewer online has done a video about RoboCop, it seems like. like. This movie has been covered as much as a movie can be covered, I think. Yeah. But it's it's fun. And it, it like, it's a robot guy that's a cop, and he shoots a bunch of people in the head. Like, it's, it is 80s B-movie, like, surface level. Yeah. It's only when you really start digging and paying attention to what it's really about that you notice there's actually a lot more to it than that. And, uh... That, a lot of that was bled in, you know, Michael Miner, who's a very famous filmmaker, was also very much a political activist at one point in his life, and that all got bled into it. But yeah, anyway, to answer your question, is Verhoeven was involved in some amount of rewriting after he came on as director, but didn't have anything to do with the original creation. My one favorite note there that I'll add, uh, early on, for whatever reason, and Verhoeven has admitted this himself, he definitely talks about it in a 2012 panel he did for UCLA that is that is filmed. This is on film. Verhoeven asked Michael Miner and Ed Neumeyer to write in a sex scene between Robocop and Lewis. Absolutely he did. And they they did it. He he's he's actually said he wasn't sure when he asked they would actually even do it. And they did it. And when they came back to him with the script, they all immediately agreed that it was an awful idea and they took it out again. But it is just hilarious to me that there was a point in this where Verhoeven was asking for a potential sex scene between Robocop and Lewis. Lewis wants that Robocock. <laughs> right, like, how does that even work? <laughs> all he's got down there is a, a piece of metal shell. Uh, what's the security officer from Generation Season 1? She banged Data. Oh, right. That's true. That's Lieutenant Yar. <laughs> yeah, Tasha Denise Yar. Denise Crosby. <laughs> Uh, uh, oh, uh, well, one other thing, I guess, as long as we were talking about the writing, the same 2012 panel that a bunch of these people did for UCLA, toward the end of it, one of the people in the audience asked Michael Miner a question about why he and Ed Newmeyer didn't come back for the sequel. It's a whole separate thing we'll talk about at a different time. But Miner goes into a little bit of detail about the rules for when they were writing Robocop as a character. And he states that they had what they referred to as John Wayne rules. And the idea was Robocop never kisses the girl, can never be seen on a telephone, and can never fly. And they broke Uh. all three of those rules in the third one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, in preparation for this podcast, I watched Robocop 1, 2, the shitty remake, but not 3 because I'm not suicidal. (laughs) (laughs) I have some lightly positive things to say about that remake, but I would agree it's not its not really very good. Well, one shot I do like is when they show him what he looks like without the armor, and he's just basically lungs yes. and a head. I love it. I said the same thing to Corey in a text, what was it, two weeks ago? Something yeah. like that. Like, I, that's my favorite part of that movie. It is so... I, I mean, to me anyway, it's fucking frightening. That scene actually frightens me. Yeah, it's disturbing as fuck. Like, the idea of thinking about what it would be like to look at yourself that way, where you're just lungs in a plastic shell and a head. Like, God, that must that must be the most fucking disturbing. God, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, that movie 
blows. Uh, like, I... Yeah. The first time I watched it in theaters, I just didn't like it. But when I watched it uh, this morning, uh, I got angry. <laughs> I was angry <laughs> watching it. <laughs> the, the character they wrote that's constantly, like, testing him, the military dude with the goatee, the whole movie, I just wanted... Oh, Jackie Earl Haley. Yes, the whole movie. Like, the, the moment he was introduced, I'm like, can Robocop just put a round in this guy's head now? Mm. I hate him. Like, yeah, he's so bad. The j- j- fucking Michael Keaton's bad in the movie. Gary yeah. Oldman's bad. Yeah, I, the man Oldman's. Boy, we talk about inconsistent, and it's a whole separate conversation. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of various RoboCop projects that came from this one really good movie, right? Obviously, there's two RoboCop direct sequels, but there's a 1988 cartoon that came out of this shut up not to mention yeah one season not to mention the toy line of course there was a 1994 tv series one season and then there was like a i was talking to steve about this there's like a 2001 mini series of some kind it's like three or four one hour episodes i think it's four yeah yeah this is all news to me and then there's the 2014 reboot so there's a lot of like it became a franchise because of one good movie, which is just a concept that kind of irritates me. When you have one good movie and then you get a bunch of bad movies that follow it. <laughs> Two not just isn't movies. horrible. Thank you, Josh. It's not as good as this one, I'll give you that, but it's it's got uh, a lot of things going for it. They, they, you know what, that's two in a row. I, I also said almost exactly verbatim the same thing to Corey in a text conversation two days ago. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Some people make that movie out to be the most vile thing that's ever been created. It's really not that bad. It's a mess. It it, it, it could have been better, but yeah. I mean, especially when if you watch three afterward, like, no. I love yeah. how in the 80s, these, like, R-rated movies became, like, kids' things. Right. Like, this became well, something for kids somehow. Like, there, yeah, like there were Robocop that. toys. <laughs> it's true. Well, a lot of problems from 2 stem from Frank Miller's silly script. See, and I, I, I contend that that movie. Well, the way, I'll phrase it to you the way I phrased it to Corey. My contention has always been: if they had just let Miller do everything, write it, and then direct it and left him alone, I really do believe that movie either either would have been way better or way worse than it was. And I'm not sure which. I really am not. <laughs> There's no middle ground with Frank. Right. Miller. Right. <laughs> and it's true. Like everything he's ever done, I either really like or I sort of despise a little bit. <laughs> I, I think it's really cute. The bad guy is actually called RoboCop too. Right? There are some really real gems in that movie, though. I mean, Tom Noonan is the bad guy, and the scene where they run the video reel of them prototyping the next RoboCop—I love that part. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's some of the best stuff in the movie. Right, but we're skipping ahead here. <laughs> yeah, let's let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Right. I mean, another day will come for RoboCop 2, <laughs> and then another more tragic day will come for RoboCop 3. <laughs> I will say, uh, also in prep, uh, I played with RoboCop in the new Mortal Kombat 11. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, he, his fatalities are fucking rule. They do. They're great. I, I, I love that he does the... the, 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 the bit like what Clarence does with him and he shoots yeah, off the other dude's arm. Yeah, he shoots your hand off. <laughs> right. And then he calls out uh, Ed 209. Give a hand. Right, yes. Oh, Ed 209 is one of the greatest things that's ever been in a movie. Ed 209 is... It, I'm, I'm very surprised that that design took off the way it did, but we're going to yeah. talk about Ed 209 shortly. 
I think we're ready to dive into the movie itself. Right. Unless Steve has some more pre-production. Pre-production stuff. Uh, real quick. All right, we'll, we'll do, do a couple of small notes. Uh, David Cronenberg was actually offered directing rights on this movie, and he had really done nothing yet at this point cinematically. He turned it down. Uh, Peter Weller and he did end up working together on an adaptation of a uh, Burroughs book called Naked Lunch. Um, Rutger Hauer was considered to play Robocop for a while, but they ultimately oh. decided not to go with him, mostly just because he was too big. They talked a lot in a lot of the production featurettes and material that they, even aside from really liking Weller as an actor, one of their physical criteria was was needing somebody who uh, was very, very slender, like, like even more slender than would typically be considered normal, because if you, if you have anything beyond the slenderest of builds... Having the suit on just made made the person look too big and too bulky. It already does a little bit, but uh, they they didn't go with uh, Howard because of that. Um, Kurtwood Smith was mostly known as a, a theatrical actor when he got this part. I'm not even sure how he got in for an audition. I'm um, not that I regret it. I think he was amazing. He actually originally auditioned for the Dick Jones part. They told him when he went in for the, for the read that they were also sort of thinking about him for for Clarence. But he really thought that he was mostly there to read for the Dick Jones part. When his agent called him to tell him he'd been hired, he initially thought he'd been hired to play Dick Jones. Verhoeven later told Kurtwood Smith the reason he wanted Kurtwood to play Clarence is because Verhoeven felt that with glasses on, uh, Kurtwood looked like Heinrich Himmler, um, the Nazi. And he just seemed so evil to him that he thought Kurtwood would be a good villain. What an interesting conversation to have with someone. Look, you look very evil, man. I need you to play this evil guy. <laughs> right. You He's look like, I'm just like th- you could be a Nazi. <laughs> right. Absolutely. That's the thing. You get told this by Paul Verhoeven. L- listen here, evil Nazi guy. Gonna- <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, I don't. I can't imagine this movie with any other people in it. Like the movie's so perfectly cast. Like, Peter Weller, like, I can't imagine Rutger Hauer playing this. No, 100%. You're, it's one of many movies I feel that way about. I agree with you. Like, I, not to say that it would have been bad, but I can't, I cannot even think about this movie having anyone else in it. Uh, uh, one last, I guess, pre-production note. Peter Weller worked for months with a, a, a really well-known mime to try to work on how he would move inside the suit. And he, he went in like seven months before they started production to have his body fit and made molds of for the suit. But he didn't actually get to put the suit on until literally the first day of shooting. It took them like seven and a half months to get a suit. That's a whole separate thing we can talk about in a few minutes. But And he realized the moment he put it on that he he was not going to be able to apply any of the movements. He'd spent seven months developing with this mime. So they ended up hiring a guy who was the head of movement, which is a you know, type of theatrical class at Juilliard University to help Peter with moving in the suit. But um, he got into a huge argument that first day of shooting with Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven wanted to go right into shooting and Weller's like, no, I can't. Like none of what I learned, none of what I did applies to being in the suit. Like I can't, I mean, it's gonna look awful. Like you have to give me two days now to practice moving around in the suit, turned into a huge fight. They, they later on realized that the suit was so huge, he couldn't get into the squad cars wearing it. Um, so all of the shots of him getting into or out of a squad car are never complete. You never actually see him get all the way in or all the way out. They're always partial because it's always him either starting to come out or starting to – because they, they had to take parts of the suit off him just to make that possible. There's – I've never heard him – I've never heard Peter Weller repeat this. So maybe it's just an internet rumor, but – 
There is a rumor that he was losing something like seven to eight pounds a day to sweat loss because it was so hot inside the suit. In between takes, they were they were setting him down and running tubes uh, that carried cold air into the suit to pump cold air into the suit to try to keep him cool. He's complained endlessly for years about how awful. It's amazing he came back for the second one. He's, he's complained endlessly about how terrible it was to be in the suit. Like, if you watch the video footage of that 2012 UCLA panel, panel I've mentioned, the, basically the first thing out of his mouth is how bad it was to wear that suit. Um, he loves talking about it. He, he used to have to show up to set eight hours before they even started shooting just to start getting into everything. So he, he, he would like to, he's repeated this many times that he would work and work an eight, an eight hour day just getting into the suit before they were ready to shoot. He's recounted a couple of stories about how there were times where he was showing up to set at two in the morning to get started and the, the crew was still drunk from the night before and were going to bed. Like, it's pretty crazy stuff. Damn. Yeah. Oh, one last thing. Um, there's a, there's a, there is a fact was another one of these on IMDb that claims they spent a million dollars on the suit. Um, they, they made several of them for the movie. It was definitely the single most expensive thing, but whoever put that on IMDb misunderstood what they were hearing. Um, because the, the guy who said that in an interview was one of the production people. And what he really said was it might've cost a million dollars. He's talking about how expensive the suit is. The suit was the most expensive thing we did. We spent a ton of it. It might have even been a million bucks. But they never actually said it definitely cost us a million dollars on it. So that might not be a real number. <laughs> like, so yeah. Fact checking these IMDb guys, huh, Steve? Right? I think people just put whatever on there, man. I, I, could, I could write a thing about how in between takes, one of them spent the whole time sticking lollipops up his nose. And I bet it would, I bet it would stay. None of, nobody would know any different. That was a meal. Yeah, that was his thing. Right. Just as a sidebar, uh, one of the movies uh, that I reviewed on my channel is a movie called Campfire Stories. And I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that's ever submitted a trivia thing. <laughs> <laughs> So you're part of the problem, Josh, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the movie itself, RoboCop. Josh, maybe you can tell us about how it starts. We learn a little bit about the world that it exists in. It is our world, but it's also not, right? Yeah, it's a, it's an exaggerated version of our world uh, on the brink of collapse. Everything's heightened. Uh, especially the violence. We start off with some talking heads going over just what appears to be everyday things, but if you like listen to what they're saying, they're saying like pretty horrific things are going on in the world. And they got this like smile going on. This is Media Break. You give us three minutes and we'll give you the world. Good morning. I'm Casey Wong with Jess Perkins. Top story, Pretoria. The threat of nuclear confrontation in South Africa escalated today when the ruling white military government of that besieged city-state unveiled a French-made neutron bomb and affirmed its willingness to use the three-megaton device as the city's last line of defense. Yeah, the way they cover it is just like, they're so calm about like things that are, I mean, pretty wild, right? I love Paul Verhoeven's sarcasm in this movie. This, this, it, uh, he likes doing this. He did the same thing with the news breaks in Starship Troopers. And yes. I can't remember which one it was, but there's a third movie he's done the same, the news break type deal with. Yeah, it's, it's definitely his thing, although um, the commentary kind of points in different directions. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it is it is a really functional story piece. I mean, it's it's because it, that, that first scene 
I mean, first establishes how messed up everything in the world is right now, but it's also how they introduce you to the fact that OCP controls the Detroit Police Department. Because one of the yeah. last stories they cover in that, that first segment is introducing Dick Jones and OCP's in charge now and blah, blah, blah. So they're basically a corporation that, they're a private corporation that run the police department. And there's some other things that are mentioned that are privatized, which were kind of like, I guess, a joke at the time, but are now more realistic. Real. <laughs> yeah. like, like space travel being privatized. Right, and, and prisons. And prisons, exactly. Yeah. And, um... The, the, uh, loaning out like a, a mechanical heart uh, that you have to make payments on. <laughs> that that commercial was apparently Verhoeven's idea. That was one of his con- contributions to the script. He came up with that that ad. Is it time for that big operation? This may be the most important decision of your life. So come down and talk to one of our qualified surgeons here at the Family Heart Center. We feature the complete Jarvik line, Series Seven Sports Heart by Jensen. Yamaha, you picked the heart. Extended warranties, financing, qualifies for health tax credit. And remember, we care. Three dead police officers, one critically injured. Right, it, yeah. they're selling hearts like cars. Right, mechanical yeah. hearts. One of them's made by Yamaha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you got to make payments. I can only imagine if you fail to make a payment. <laughs> right. There was a movie about that too, and it wasn't very good. Repo Man, yeah, that movie yep. fucking sucks. <laughs> I've seen Clever some idea. terrible movies. Right? So now that we've learned that bit about the society we live in and OCP, which is the big corporate entity in Detroit, we go into the police department, Detroit. Uh, there's a lot of crime in the area, so the police department is just extremely hectic. But there's a new cop that's arrived. He seems like a pretty good cop. He's set up to be that way. His name's Murphy. Played by Peter Weller, of course, who becomes RoboCop. Spoilers! <laughs> to Robo. me, he seems to be separated in a way from the other cops there. And that maybe it's because he's new, but they've kind of like had enough. They're they're on the brink of going on strike. And, you know, he's just there to be a cop. He wants to do the job. Yes. And he gets a, a partner named Lewis, who has a pretty cool intro. She's, uh, as the chief of police says... Fucking around with the suspect. Lewis, come here when you finish fucking around with your suspect. Get on your feet. Paul Verhoeven made Nancy Allen get her hair cut seven separate times before he was happy with the way she looked. She normally had very long hair and he wanted to do as much as he could to desexualize her. So he, he had seven different people cut her hair and she hated it. She She's talked about it before. She she actually re- has referred to it at least once in an interview I've seen as the worst haircut in the world. She, she really <laughs> did not like it. But yeah, I, they, they they connect the dots on this a bit later on. Um, next scene, really, when uh, or kind of a scene and a half later, uh, talking about how OCP. We'll get we'll get to more as we get to the meeting, but OCP is working on some future law enforcement technology and in keeping with. One of the programs they're working on, they've intentionally had certain cops transferred to high risk precincts where they're likely to get killed because they want they want the bodies to experiment with, basically. Why don't you tell us about that? So there's an OCP executive meeting of sorts. And uh, what are they looking to do? So the meeting starts off being led primarily by Dick Jones, who's the senior vice president of OCP. It's probably also worth mentioning, this is where we get introduced to a character who's never given a real name. He's just referred to as the old man. 
Um, it's Colonel by- Cochran, famous from Halloween 3. Yes, you are absolutely right. Yeah, Dan O'Hurley, Dan O'Hurley or Hurlihan, I think, something like that. He's an Irish actor. He's been in a lot of movies. Um, he was great for, for that part. And uh, uh, we get introduced to him. He's in charge of the company. Senior Vice President Dick Jones is leading this meeting at first. And Dick is introducing a new technology. He, he gives us a little bit of an introduction to OCP as a company. He talks about how OCP is heavily invested in military technology and in medical technology. He says that the company has gambled and won many times in sectors that are traditionally considered nonprofit. He utters a very famous line. I think it's a, a, a good business is where you find it, uh, which is one of the most famous lines from that film. And then he introduces a new technology along these lines, a, an enforcement droid, a uh, really enforcement droid ED model 209. It's this new uh, bipedal, very large bipedal robot that's meant for military and police use. And it's supposed to be artificially intelligent enough to do a lot of um, uh, really violent military and police <laughs> enforcement work on behalf of law enforcement. Okay, so real quick. Yeah. Ed 209, giant fucking robot with huge fucking guns and rockets. Right. And he's like, all right, we know the cops are going to be kind of phased out here. A lot of them are dying. They're going to go on strike. We need something new. And then we can make money on it later. And I guess I should probably take a half step back. We also discovered during the lead up in this meeting that um, OCP buying up the police department or taking over the police department is just one part of a much, much bigger plan. Um, the old man has got this this plan he's been working on for over a decade. They basically want to level a huge chunk of central Detroit and build a new city where it stood called, called Delta City. And um, – you know, in some ways, it actually sounds like a very altruistic idea because it's going to clean the city up and they're going to get rid of all the homelessness of crime and they're going to give tens of thousands of people jobs and it's going to be a new tourist attraction. It's going to be great. Unfortunately, the way this goes about being implemented is not the most human centric. No. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, on that topic, I want to say Ed 209, this thing is what they're going to use as a police officer replacement. Yeah, and partly they want to get into the field quickly because downtown, the central center of Detroit is turned into a complete cesspool. And we, we find out as time goes on that OCP is actually intentionally playing a hand in that. But um, Sure. But, um, I mean, Ed 209, this thing is just going to murder people. Oh, That's yeah. what it's designed for. It's a fucking killing machine. Well, I, yeah, you, yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, I, you're right, but I think that, you know, this is where we really touch on in this meeting is that it's really supposed to be smart enough to not just go kill people. And that's, that's kind of where we have our first problem. Well, sure, we do. But what else is it really capable of? Well, I, you know, no, I mean, you're <laughs> yeah, right. But is I, it going to, like, put handcuffs on somebody? I don't see it well, doing that. Is it going to diffuse a situation, like, somehow? Well, like- I, I think the implication is that that's what it's supposed to do. Because when it when it talks to when it talks to Kenny, the the board guy, so they they they, get, they bring Ed two hundred nine into the room. Dick Jones says he picks out one of the junior execs who we, we met a minute ago. He says, "You stand up, take this handgun for me, point take it this at Chrome forty five. Right, that was actually originally <laughs> supposed to be RoboCop's gun. It was an Israeli Desert Eagle, this huge gun, and they they chose it because it was giant. And then they found that when um, Peter Weller held it in the RoboCop suit, it still looked too tiny, so they had to have something bigger made. Um, the and, Auto Nine, right? But um. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, it's basically, this is a demonstration. And when you first start the demonstration, it seems like what Ed 209 is there for is to defuse the situation. He basically says, you know, drop the weapon and I won't kill you. I think the, the idea is supposed to be that there are people, cops there too, and that the Ed 209 goes and deals with the armed guy 
and either disarms him or kills him. And then the police, the human police kind of clean up afterward. Or, you know, in the case that this is being used by the military, because Ed or not Dick, Dick implies they really want the military to be buying this. In those cases, you're probably right. I mean, somewhere like Afghanistan, they would just send these things through houses and just have it kill everybody. Well, but, sure. Um, but like even lo- – like- but it's it either going to threaten to kill you or it's going to actually kill you. Well, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, what it can do. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's just my only, it's just it's supposed to be artificially intelligent enough that it doesn't jump right to killing you. And unfortunately, the AI doesn't work. <laughs> um, you know, because the next moment it, it kills Mr. Kenny, the board member, the, 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 the junior executive dude, it blows him away. This is a scene they had to edit the shit out of for the theatrical release. You get all of it back in the director's cut. Um we also, I sort of leaned over there before you even get to the board meeting. The guy who just got shot to death by a 209 is riding up in an elevator to the boardroom with Johnson and Morton and Morton. And, um, they, they establish during the elevator ride that, um, uh, Dick Jones has been in charge of this project to develop at 209, but that there have been these massive overruns and cost delays and, and production issues. And that the old man as a contingency plan put Bob Morton, this other executive, this younger executive, in charge of, of, of a contingency program. So we now know by the time we get to the boardroom and, and hear everything, we know that OCP owns the cops, that they're planning on rebuilding Detroit, that crime is a huge issue, that Ed 209 is supposed to be both a military and police solution, and that there's another secondary option. And then we get to the part where Ed 209 blows away this executive and, and the old man freaks out. And it's clear this thing does not fucking work. It doesn't work. The enforcement droid, Series 209, is a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. 209 is currently programmed for urban pacification, but that is only the beginning. After a successful tour of duty in old Detroit, we can expect 209 to become the hot military product for the next decade. Yeah. I mean, even if I if it did, horrible fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine calling the cops and this fucking giant thing shows up and is just like pointing machine guns at you. Fucking horrible. <laughs> Blast them for like a solid 30 seconds. I, I fucking love that scene. Basically tears him in half, yeah. It is a good scene, though. There's a lot of good gore in there, and it's pretty funny, actually. It is. But, yeah, like you said, Morton and uh, Dick Jones are now kind of enemies because Morton's like, that shit doesn't work. Let's do this RoboCop idea I have. Right. And we learn what that is eventually. Josh, why don't you tell us about uh, Murphy and Lewis in the early years? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh... (laughs) I guess uh, they're just hanging out. Murphy is, uh, you know, flipping his little gun around, uh, TJ Laser style. I guess a play on TJ Hooker. Yes, yeah, it is. Is it supposed to be? That's it that's is. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're just hanging out. He's talking about his, you know, son wanting to be a good uh, role model, and then they get the call. The call. <laughs> yeah, the call of the the Ghostbusters, <laughs> call um, of the wild, call of the wild. Yeah, so they respond to a an armed robbery call, which has already yeah. occurred. So they go to chase down the the perpetrators, and it's 
It's Clarence and his gang of... Clarence uh, is like one of the coolest fucking villains in all of movie history. Can you fly, Bobby? We, we did miss... I'm going to let Josh talk, but we did miss that beginning newscast. Aside from talking about OCP and the police department, one of the things they talk about is that several police officers were recently killed. And one of them is in critical condition in the hospital. And that Clarence Bodiger and his gang are the ones responsible and the newscaster describes Clarence Bodiger as Detroit's unofficial crime boss. So we've already we've already been introduced to the idea that this guy's around and he's like the biggest, baddest bad guy in Detroit. Definitely. Yeah, he's, they call him, what, the unofficial crime boss or something? Yeah. Yeah. And when Murphy and Lewis go to chase him down, this also tells you about the society they live in because Murphy just takes two guns and just starts, like, unloading on their car. So, like... <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's good for a movie, but it's obviously not very realistic for it to go down that way. He's just like hanging out the window, just like wielding two guns, just like Billy the Kid shooting at him. It's pretty funny. <laughs> They're blasting shotguns at him. Every single member of Clarence's gang has a shotgun. And they're all slightly right. different from each other. Uh, right. He mm. does hit one person, Bobby, and Clar- Clarence isn't having that. What is it he says to him? Can you fly, Bobby? <laughs> Can you fly, Bobby? <laughs> well, he's mad at Bobby because Bobby fucked up blowing open the safe. That's right. They're in the back of the truck at first, and Clarence is looking over all the money they just stole from this bank they've robbed, and he realizes all of it is singed and burned. And it's because Bobby used too much explosive to blow the safe door off. So when Bobby then subsequently gets shot, Clarence is like, all right, well, this is a good opportunity to just get rid of you. <laughs> No crime uh, the goes chase kind of leads him to a warehouse. Josh, why don't you tell us about some of the big moments that happened there? Holy shit. All right, so Murphy and Lewis arrive at the warehouse. We instantly get two of Clarence's uh, goons. There's Emil and other guy. And they're watching a sitcom that everybody in this movie watches. And it has like the worst type of humor. <laughs> Like, what the it's fuck like, is this show, right? I'd buy that for a dollar. Seems like a play on Benny Hill, from what I picked up from it. <laughs> um, it the, the, the line, I'd buy that for a dollar, came from a book, a short story, called The Marching Morons. Um, it's a story which presents a, a cynical view of an over-commercialized future where they've been desensitized to violence and war. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting reference, but it's a reference that, like, nobody gets. Um, <laughs> that's but, cool. Though. But, yeah, but I exactly. Was that's why it's what there. What the fuck that was? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're ever interested, uh, the story was written by a guy named Cyril M. Cornbluth, and it's called "The Marching Morons," and that's that's where that came from. He, it was really a, 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 an adaptation of a line from that story, but yeah, that's why. Alex and, uh, Murphy and uh, Lewis split up. Uh, Murphy obviously finds a mill and other guy watching the show, and Lewis finds Joe, who's taking a late uh, taking a whiz. He asks if he can, you know, zip up his dick, and she's, like, staring him in the eye, and you're wondering if she's going to look down at his dick. <laughs> and, yeah, she looks down at his dick and gets thrown off, so she's taken out, and around that same time, Murphy uh, gets outnumbered by all of Clarence's goons. I took her out. <laughs> yeah, that oh, man, is crazy. The actor that plays Joe is so over the top. They cast him almost specifically specifically because of that laugh. Apparently, they asked him to do it like 47 times in his, in his auditions just to hear him do it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Murphy's outnumbered. 
Clarence is, uh, you know, talking shit to him, and uh, Murphy calls him slime. You probably don't think I'm a very nice guy, <laughs> do you? Buddy, I think you're slime. Like, what? That's such a lame insult. I, I don't know. That just stuck out to me. But then yeah. they just fucking execute him in one of the most violent scenes ever. It is. It really is. They blast him to pieces. They start with shooting his hand off with a shotgun at point blank range. It's horrific. Yeah. You see his little, like, fucked up stub. <laughs> and he's in complete shock. The gore is pretty consistent from the Ed 209 scene, but it, you're using it in a different way to get two different emotions out of it. Like, you kind of chuckle and laugh at the Ed 209 scene, like how fucking awesome that is. But when it happens to Murphy, you're like, holy shit. Yeah, in fact, Michael, Josh, I think you'd be really interested, actually. There's In one of the interview segments we're talking about the writing, Michael Miner spent several minutes specifically talking about the differences between subjective and objective violence and how both are incorporated into the film. So it's a really solid observation. Oh, yeah. I, I'll, uh, I'll look into that. And then they just unload on him, like Josh said. Uh, he has body armor, so he doesn't get, like, shredded to pieces like someone would otherwise. But he is still thoroughly fucked up. They shoot his arm off, and when he's, like, writhing around, still barely alive, he gets one straight to the head by Clarence. It's hardcore. In the director's cut version, which is the version I think most people are watching at this point, there's there's that there's a close-up shot of Murphy getting shot in the head. Um, it did not... A- he got trimmed from the theatrical so they get the R rating. And Verhoeven was really intent on getting that specific, that last shot to the head be as graphic as, as they could get away with. So instead of using Peter, they had molds made of him. And they got the shot using a, a, a model, a rubber, a rubber model with a frame underneath it of his upper torso and head. And uh, it was controlled by basically bicycle pedals. Somebody controlling it from underneath could spin the pedals and it would make the head move and the arms come up in the air like he was trying to shield his face from a shot. And they they panned the camera around it while Kurtwood Smith fired the gun at him and a squib installed inside it blew the back of the model out so they could get the 180 degree shift around while he was getting his skull blown out. Like Verhoeven wanted it to be that detailed. They wow. planned that out. Yeah. And it's executed very well. It is. No pun, pun intended. intended. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe there was a pun intended. So he is dead. He goes into sur- well, he goes into surgery. He's taken to the hospital. I really like that scene actually. I shouldn't just gloss over it. Like it's it's an intense scene. It feels real. There's a lot of like first person point of view and close-ups. Extreme this movie uses a lot of extreme close-ups. But uh, also here Murphy has that, like, dead eye. I mean, credit to the actor. Like, he... <laughs> this guy looks dead. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's he's a method actor, at least up to a point. In fact, for a little while, he was insisting on set that people refer to him as Robo. There, there was uh, there were several stories. I, I, know that, I know for a fact this is real, because Verhoeven, Miguel Ferrer, and, and um, Ray Wise, all three of them independently of each other, have all said that this, this really did happen, where... Weller was was insisting he be referred to as Robo, and he and Miguel Ferrer had known each other for like 20 years before they even did this movie, and uh, Ferrer had a story about coming in one day and seeing Peter sitting in his chair and 
and saying, hey, Peter, hey, hey, why aren't you talking to me? Why are you ignoring me? And Peter eventually turns to him in Robocop's voice and says, I know no one named Peter. Like, he wouldn't he wouldn't respond to it. <laughs> Who does he think he is? Wesley Snipes in Blade 3? <laughs> right. I mean, he's definitely a... a um, uh, a method actor move. Yeah, I mean, I heard he like sent like used condoms to people on the set. Oh my god, I didn't no, hear I'm just that kidding. Word. That's Jared Leto. <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. That makes way more sense. <laughs> Probably used on. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> You're sick, Steve. All right. Yep. <laughs> so we get a nice build up to RoboCop. We 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 knew a little bit about the project that Morton was planning, but we see. All first person from RoboCop's point of view, he's starting to be put together. We see like the scientists in the room. We see the like, vision from his point of view as like that old school like TV static for a moment until they like fix it up. Yeah, I, the scene where they've got him in the hospital, they used real hospital workers to take the gurney. So they were ad-libbing what they said, but what they were saying was real medical terminology, which I think is why it, it works. The, the the bit with his his screen. I always thought was really interesting. Like I love the effect and I've loved it for a long time, but they did, they gave it a very distinct CRT effect. And it's like, it clearly, it wouldn't be a CRT screen and it makes no sense. It would work that way. It's also very low resolution. And it's like, then and in addition to which, like most of him is robotic anyway. So why build the screen into the face mask? Why not just incorporate it into his skull? So it like Terminator where he just sees it. Like, anyway. <laughs> There's a super cold moment where they tell him, you know, we were able to save the arm, and they're like, fuck that, chop it off. Sorry. We were able to save the left arm. What? I thought we agreed on total body prosthesis. Now lose the arm, okay? Jesus, Morton. Can, can you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. We're going to blank his memory anyway. Well, I think we should lose the arm. What, what do you think, Johnson? Well, he signed the release forms and he joined the force. He's legally dead. We can do pretty much what we want to. Lose the arm. No, you know what? I, I agree. It's super cold. I also agree. The totally right decision. You're turning this guy mostly into a robot. Why leave a human arm? In fact, that's one. the one thing about that scene we discussed in the remake that bothers the shit out of me, where they take him apart and he's got his actual hand left, but like on a metal rod. And I'm like, why the fuck would you ever do that? Yeah. They wanted what? him to be able to shake hands. Yeah, like, come on. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it is also true that, it, yeah, why would he not have control over how tight he was squeezing? And then in that case, it makes his fight, fights with Dick Jones and Clarence later in the film really difficult to understand. Cause at that point, like, he literally should have just crushed, crushed his neck. Like, if you can apply three or four hundred square pound feet of torque with your hand, you can easily just crush someone's neck. So we're going to talk about that. <laughs> for, I have some things to say on that topic, yeah. which are iffy, but. Uh, Robocop is built. Very nice buildup, like I mentioned. When you first see him emerge, it's first he's kind of obscured, then you just see him from the back. But eventually you do see him full on, and he gets to work. So his purpose is to be like this form of super cop. He now has his like cool gun, the Auto 9 that Steve mentioned earlier. He's got his prime directives. <clears throat> prime directives, he does. They wanted it to be kind of a slow reveal. And uh, if you look at the way they reveal him during that first few minutes, it, it's it's really nice the way they did it. The first time you get a glimpse of him at all is right after they've really fully activated him for the first time and he's walking toward a group of people. There's an instant where you catch sort of a three-quarter view of him on a, on a monitor in the lab. And then he eventually gets to the station, but you mostly see him behind frosted glass. And there's this one little glimpse of, glimpse of him going through the door. And then, then you see him going to his cage, but he's obscured behind um, the, the chain link fencing. 
and it, it takes a few minutes before you really get get a real look at them, which I think is nice. I agree. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. It's perfect build up towards the reveal. Right. Now, like I said before, he, he hits the streets to do what he does, which is, well, he has his three directives, serve the public trust, protect the innocent, uphold the law. So he leaves the station. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Oh, I was going to say, we get a glimpse of a hidden fourth directive, but he's unable to access it. Oh, good good call. Good point. Um, there's a moment where he's leaving the station for the first time, and Morton goes to the, the captain and says he needs a car. And they throw him a set of keys. And Robo just grabs the keys out of midair and says, thank you, and walks out to his car. The, the RoboCop hands were actually rubber, and he didn't have a whole lot of dexterity in them, and they're thick. And um, they kept trying to do that, and the keys just kept bouncing off his hand. And they literally had to do something like 50 takes before they got one where he caught them. And by the time it happened, everyone was like, fine, just use that. We're done. <laughs> that is a very small moment to spend a lot of money on. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's not as good as – I mean, if you just hand him the keys, like – It is go. better. He just like walks over. And like, that's really- not – but it really isn't to your point about so many the money and the takes. Like there were in, weird instances of that where like they were working on this extremely tight budget, but there were these moments where Verhoeven was like, "Yeah, just just do it, spend whatever." There, he he had a second unit director who was doing most of the uh, photography for a lot of the shootouts, and um, the guy was working. They shot most of this movie in Dallas, really. And the guy was working for Verhoeven in Dallas, and Verhoeven gave him this list organized by priority like here are the most important shots you absolutely have to get and then here's some stuff i really want but if we can't it's not the biggest deal in the world and verhoven literally told them if you can work your way through this entire list and you still have time left to shoot you can literally just shoot whatever you want i don't care shoot whatever you want as long as you get this stuff done first and we'll see if any of the footage is good (laughs) interesting josh uh I was going to say, why don't you tell us about some of his uh, key moments out there doing his thing when he's fighting crime. Yeah, we get a montage of him fighting crime. So, yeah, um, one in particular is the, the the vile rape scene. Like, I expect that in Suburban Commando, but not my RoboCop. You know? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but he also busts up a uh, an armed robbery by John Rhys-Davies. <laughs> and uh, a hostage situation. There's a couple of notes there, real quick. The rape scene, Robocop ends it by shooting that one, shooting through the woman's skirt into the dude's crotch. Um, that scene was not supposed to end that way. The scene itself was in the script, but he, Robo was just going to shoot the guy in the head or something. It, Verhoeven, while they were rehearsing, decided he wanted the bad guy to sort of lift that woman up in the air off her feet to be a human shield. And when he did it, Verhoeven then realized that Robo would have a clear path through the skirt to the dude's crotch, and that's when they came up with that idea. So Verhoeven was like, "Yeah, I want you to shoot this dude in the balls." <laughs> and then uh, <clears throat> when they when they do the the hostage, so there's a guy, a disgruntled city worker, who's holding the mayor and some other office workers hostage inside City Hall, and um, Robo eventually goes into the building, and there's a shot where he's looking through the wall and he sees everybody in infrared. Here's another IMDb argument. IMDb claims that they, 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 well, I should say they did not shoot that scene with real infrared lenses. They shot that scene by putting the actors in tutus and then painting over the tutus and using filters and stuff to make the effect look like, like infrared. 
IMDB claims that they shot it that way because Paul Verhoeven thought that using real infrared equipment would be too expensive. The cinematographer, I think it was the cinematographer, one of the guys who actually got the shot, maybe it was the special effects dude, said that he didn't say that's not true because he never addressed it, but he didn't say that at all. What he did say was they didn't realize that there were infrared lenses they could use with motion picture cameras that would make the effect come out. So the reason they used the painted tutus is because they didn't think there was even another way for them to do it until they found out weeks after the fact that the original Predator, which was being shot the same year, had used real infrared to get the Predator effects. I see. So they, they just did it that way because they didn't, they didn't even know they, they had an option. It's a creative workaround. <clears throat> right, exactly. But I want to speak to the substance of this scene and, and a couple others around here. Robocop just throws this fucker out of the window and kills him. <laughs> he, he stops. There's like a politician that's like kidnapped the mayor and other whatever local judges or whoever they are. Doesn't really matter. The point is Robocop comes in because no one can uh, no one can save these people except for him. He comes in, pulls the guy out, punches him. The guy falls out a window. So like Robocop is clearly just like a blunt tool to kill people. The guy in the in the in the convenience store, he doesn't even arrest him. He just leaves. Well, I mean, that's the part that I always thought was kind of strange. He does that with all of them. He he saves that woman from being raped. He shoots one of the guys, tells her he's going to notify a rape crisis center, and then leaves. Thank you. Thank you. Madam, you have suffered an emotional shock. I will notify a rape crisis center. <laughs> he goes to the convenience store. He throws that guy into the freezer cabinet, and then leaves. Like, he goes to City Hall, he throws a guy out the window, and then leaves. Like, he never sticks her. Like, who's going to show up to, to fix the rest of this? That's where his prime directives don't really make sense anyway. Like, he's pretty choosy with them. He's like, yeah, my job is to uphold the law, but also I'm just going to kill people sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, it's very strange. I guess it's part of the whole commentary of it. I mean, I guess you're not really supposed to care because, like, the dude in the city hall was holding a bunch of people hostage with a gun. So, like, that dude, that dude's going to go to jail anyway, I guess. But, yeah, you're right. Cops probably shouldn't just be – in fact, given given the state of everything's going on in society, literally right this moment, cops should probably not just be killing people. <laughs> right. <laughs> that guy looks a lot like John Rhys-Davies, though. <laughs> he does. He really does. So, maybe he does deserve to die. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't like the idea of police in real life just shooting people. But in the context of a science fiction movie, like, I, I don't care that that character got killed. He well, these criminals are, like, way over the top evil. So it's okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. But, yeah, no, I do find it weird that he never sticks around. It's like uh, the bad guys in The Crow <laughs> or something. One of my favorite commercials in the whole movie, because every now and then, like, it shows commercials in their world's TV, is Nukem. Which is like, oh, yeah, yes. that's my favorite bit. Red alert, red alert, red alert. You crossed my line of debt. You haven't dismantled your MX stockpile. Pakistan is threatening my border. That's it, Buster. No more military aid. <laughs> Nukem. Get them before they get you. Another quality home game from Butler Brothers. It's an amazing one. It's like Battleship, but like you're declaring like nuclear war on like other countries. It's right. like some kind of like weird political military game. One, you know, this, there's so much political and consumer stuff laced into this. Like this is right at the end of the USSR. The wall hadn't quite come down yet. The Cold War was still technically a thing. Like um, just a few years before in 83, NATO had held the gigantic military out exercise called Able Archer. 
that the Russians totally misunderstood and that literally, I mean, it came within moments of actually turning into a nuclear war. Um, so yeah, I mean, the world they were living in at the time, there was, there was actually this thought that like, even though it had been 40 years since World War II had ended, there really was a sentiment among people that we might, we might end up having this happen again. Like, yeah. Man, scary times. It is. You contrast that with like the, the real, uh, the news footage where they're like, the peace laser accidentally killed like 130 people. (laughs) Right. This like cheesy ass nuclear commercial. Good evening. I'm Jess Perkins with Casey Wong. Top story, Santa Barbara. 10,000 acres of wooded residential land were scorched in an instant when a laser cannon aboard the Strategic Defense Peace Platform misfired today during routine startup tests. Casey? Yes, it was a day of mourning for the families of 113 people known dead at this hour, among them two former United States presidents who had retired in the Santa Barbara area. A day of mourning for a country. Right, and at the beginning of the film, that original news segment J- Josh was talking about, one of the things they mentioned is that apartheid in South Africa is still a thing, and that the 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 government that's in charge in South Africa within the context of this world has now started threatening that it'll it'll just use nuclear weapons against people if it has to. Like, so yeah, I mean, that really is like the, they they took a, a a kernel from reality and just sort of comic booked it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of where the satire comes in. Uh, to get back to our, our friend RoboCop here, so, you know, he's he's doing pretty well as a cop. He's he's operating as he should be. But uh, something kind of changes with that. He starts having nightmares in, during his, like, regeneration period or whatever it is. And his humanity starts to, like, creep back in, which we see more of and more of throughout the movie. But at, he just basically, like, leaves the police station to go, I guess, continue to work or to try to find some kind of answer. And he he stumbles upon Emil, Josh. What's what's going on with our friend Emil? So Emil is uh, trying to get some gas. You know, uh, holds as the you do. At- yeah, as <laughs> you do, holds the attendant hostage. Uh, the what I think is like fucking hilarious is like when he finds out the guy's like a college student. He's like, you think you could outsmart a bullet? Like, no, you fucking jock dickhead. Emil is just the worst. He's so unnecessarily mean. Like, right? This guy, this convenience store guy who never says a word. He's so insecure. <laughs> you a college boy or something? Huh? I bet you think you're pretty smart, huh? Think you could outsmart a bullet? What do you say we find out, huh? I'm talking to you. What do you say? Huh? Huh? In the convenience store employee, the gas station employee was was Paul Verhoeven spoofing himself. Verhoeven, Verhoeven is such a weird, interesting individual. Verhoeven has a PhD in mathematics. I swear to God, he's that brilliant. And Holy and shit. so the 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 kid in the gas station wearing the glasses and studying math books was Verhoeven sp- literally intentionally spoofing himself. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and then um, RoboCop shows up on the scene, tells Emil, "Dead or alive, you're coming with me." And then it it clicks with Emil that he's heard that before from one dead Alex Murphy and who they uh, had thought they had previously killed. And uh, RoboCop starts recording what he's saying. Dead or alive, you are coming with me. I know you. You're dead. We killed you. We killed you. That's actually a, a super deep moment. 
when you start thinking about it, like legitimately. I mean, first of all, just the context of this is kind of horrifying. Murphy Alex has got a part, a part of his brain left. It's not even all there. It's just a bit of cortex. And they think they've taken all his memory from him. But it's obvious that there are these, these bits, these pieces, these vague fragments, these ghosts of memories floating around his head that don't connect to each other properly or, or to other memories. He's, he's experiencing these feelings and these memories. There's these fragments that really belong to a different person. He's got no idea how to contextualize them. He doesn't know what they mean. He doesn't know who the people he's remembering are. He doesn't understand that this is his wife and his child. He doesn't really remember the life he had before. Alex himself isn't really there anymore. There's even a scene at the end of the movie, toward the end, <clears throat> where he's talking about it with Lewis. And she asks him basically what he remembers. And he refers to his family by saying, I, I can feel them, but I don't actually remember them. Yeah. So this is this very, very difficult, very human sort of thing for him to be contending with. And in the moment when he says that to Emil, Alex doesn't, I mean, what's left of Alex doesn't realize that he's using a catchphrase. And he doesn't understand that he's saying something that the other version of him had said previously. And it's it's a real mega shock to him, just psychologically, to... to this other guy recognizes what he said and like Murphy's taken back you know what do you I don't remember ever saying this I don't know who you are you know and then this triggers Murphy having to go figure out what the connection really is right well, we get glimpses of his uh, past life early on when uh, Lewis notices noticing him uh, doing the TJ laser move at the shooting range right right some of the muscle memory from his previous life so there are a few uh, Alex Murphy uh, circuits still sparking. Right. So this triggers Murphy Robocop to, I guess, kind of investigate uh, what he's feeling or vaguely remembering. He goes back to his old house. Um, you see him from the first person and kind of like subtle flashbacks, just like bits and pieces, right? He's kind of starting to know like, okay, maybe... I was this person and what that leads to is him hunting down the people that killed him because he starts remembering that as well he uh breaks into ocp and this is the first time we see his fucking awesome data spike yeah <laughs> i, I think so badass <clears throat> i want to talk about that for one second this will be a quick one but first of all they they could not find a way to integrate the spike and the mechanism that makes it work into one of the hands that um, Peter Weller was actually wearing. So the hand the spike comes out of in that scene is not attached to Peter Weller. They literally just held it up in front of the camera from, from below camera and a, the person holding it is the one operating the spike. They just organized it in a way that made it look like it was connected to Peter's arm. But if, if you notice during the scene, you never actually see... You never actually see that that hand connected to him while the mechanism is working. Like, you can't see the elbow joint. The only time you ever actually see the full connection from end to end, the spike is either in or out. You never actually see the operation of it while it's connected. And then secondly, the computer that he goes up to to look these people up on was a uh, – make sure I got this right. Yeah, it was a northern telecom telephone switch. That piece of hardware was designed to make telephone systems work. They just sort of dressed it up to make it look like a police computer. Sure. <laughs> With the spike port. Right? Nowadays, it was just a little USB stick would come out. But, you know, that's... I was going to say, like, is the data spike thing, like, supposed to be this version's, like, uh, USB? Like, does everybody have, like, a fucking data spike uh, stick or something? <laughs> 
For RoboCop, absolutely. I, I, I mean, it's just really forward thinking because you got to keep in mind '87 that that doesn't exist yet, you right. know. Mm-hmm. So they, they, the idea of like this metallic terminal connection point that can link him up to a data point is kind of cool. I'm not sure it really needed to be a six inch long spike, but uh, it's kind of a cool idea. There's a scene later on in the movie where where Morton gets killed, where Bodiger puts a DVD into one of the the video players in his house. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, they called a, a lot of things. Right, decade before uh, well, DVD. Let me tell you why it's six inches. His data spike, uh, so he can stab <laughs> Clarence Bodiger at the end. Yeah, exactly. No <laughs> uh, I still want to see the, the up to date version with a little USB though. <laughs> where he stabs a, a, a henchman with with a USB. It'd probably be the other way around. Now he'd probably have like a USB C port in his hand, and he plugs a cable into it. You know? <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> right. He has the port, right? So uh, yeah, he hacks into the OCP's computer database, and he's able to track down Emil's uh, known associates, which leads to him finding out about Clarence and uh, the murder of one Alex Murphy. Right. And as he's going through them, he makes a few stops. One of his stops is at this super 80s nightclub. I love this part. Where he drags and, Leon out. Yes. But first, I got to ask Steve, which is the better 80s nightclub, Terminator or Robocop? Are you talking about the Technoir in the original Terminator? Yep. Yeah. Oh, man. I, it's hard for me to pick between the two. They're, they're, they're both so amazing. I mean, I think... I think if they were both real and I were choosing, I'd probably end up hanging out in Technoir. But I like both yeah, of them. Yeah, me too. You know, that right? That that scene was a huge pain for them to shoot. Um, Weller's talked about it a few times. They had smoke in the room, and uh, they built this very narrow, like three foot wide staircase that Weller had to walk down. He was only wearing the top half of the suit because it was too difficult to get down the stairs and the whole thing. So they had to be careful about only shooting him like from the abdomen up. He could hardly see anything through the helmet and the smoke that was in the air around him. And he was not allowed to look down. Verhoeven didn't want him looking down at the steps because they figured a robot wouldn't really need to. So uh, Weller was trying to do this without rolling down the stairs. And there were people walking backwards in front of him holding a camera toward him. So if he falls forward in half this suit, he's going to roll onto the camera and these other guys – Apparently they they did like three takes of it and just said that's good enough. Like we we're not we're gonna kill somebody if we keep doing this. Yeah, I mean you don't need these long shots of him walking in. So like yeah. you don't have to spend too much time on that. <laughs> right. Like he's he's there. You get it. You know. Like Ray just Wise show him walking in the front door. Absolutely. Ray Wise had some some sort of fun things to say about shooting the scene with him, kicking him in the crotch and stuff. It's a lot of fun. I think one of my favorite moments from the nightclub is when he goes up to Leon. Leon pulls a gun. He just slaps it out of his hand. Another guy catches just it, picks it up, but just keeps keep, keeps dancing. Right? Doesn't doesn't That's miss so a beat. Awesome. <laughs> There's a moment in there right as uh, Robo's dragging uh, dragging him out by his hair. Where the camera pans over and there's one guy dancing like a complete and total lunatic with uh, ear length hair. That's Verhoeven. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> he did not intend originally to end up on camera he was having trouble getting the people in the club to dance at the pace that he wanted them to so he just told the dp to run the camera and he was going to stand in the audience and just dance with everybody to get them get them rolling and the guy operating the camera at the last second decided to pan around and grab him and a couple seconds of it ended up in the movie (laughs) that's awesome right (laughs) so robocop's out there busting heads kind of in his own way i guess getting revenge arresting people that uh, wronged him, I, I guess is a lo- the light way to put it. 
Uh, but what's Bob Morton doing, Josh? He's he's having fun, isn't he? <laughs> Meanwhile, in the OCP executive bathroom. <laughs> no, not uh, the bathroom. Uh, at his house. Not the bathroom. Oh, we uh, got it. You know what? Though we've got to do the bathroom first. Josh is right because the bathroom's the setup for what happens at the house. Okay. Go yeah. Ahead. On the way into the bathroom, he mentions, you know, uh, do you want to do? Uh, his pal mentions, do you want to do some shit? And he's like, oh no, I got a couple models coming over. If you know what I mean. Uh, then they go into the bathroom. And they make a note of the fact that Norton, more Morton now has access to the executive bathroom. He's been promoted. Yeah. They start talking shit about Dick Jones. I hear Jones was plenty pissed. Oh, you know, he's got this killer rep, but it's a smokescreen. <laughs> his face, he's lost his teeth. The guy's a pussy. You're talking about the same Dick Jones? Hey, he's old, we're young, and that's life. <laughs> Everybody... Immediately bails out of the bathroom out of fear. And I guess Dick didn't even wipe because he just <laughs> gets up. He just stands up and walks out. Like, God he, damn, dude. None of these guys use soap washing their hands either. One of the guys pissed his pants. <laughs> right. And, That's um, great. Oh, yeah. Dick uh, confronts Morton. They get into it a little bit. And uh, basically, Dick Jones says in not so many words, you know, watch your fucking back because I'm going to come for it. You just fucked with the wrong guy. Your fucking mind. Yeah, Morton's talking a bunch of shit about him. Basically says, "I'm not scared of him. He's all he's all gas." And uh, Jones hears it when he you know, comes back out, like Josh said. And basically, you think I'm all gas? You wait and see what happens. Uh, what I find interesting about Morton as a character is in the OCP scenes, he's kind of portrayed as the like a good guy, like a, the protagonist of those scenes. But all the scenes that take place in the Metro police station, he's the villain of that story. I asked him his name. He didn't know. Oh, great. Let me make it real clear for you. He doesn't have a name. He's got a program. He's product. Is that clear? Sure. Listen, Reed. Yeah, try and keep one thing in mind. This project doesn't concern cops. It's classified. It's OCP. Got it, mister? Yeah, uh, Ferrer talks about that a little in some of the supplemental, and you're absolutely 100% right. He and Verhoeven had some conversations about how that character should be portrayed, and Ferrer was the one originally who suggested the idea that this guy shouldn't necessarily be totally unsympathetic. In, in a lot of ways, he's really not the worst guy. He's just kind of an asshole. He's ambitious. Yeah, he's ambitious, and he goes about being ambitious in a way that's not not very nice or very friendly. And you can you can definitely peg him for that. But he's not a bad guy in the way a lot of the other people. The way in the that story Dick are. Jones is. Dick yeah. Jones is like a, a fucking, fucking monster, bastard. right? Yeah. Right. And, and to the, to that point, I'm going back to the beginning just for a second. Um, there's a, a lot of questioning over the years. People like, why would Ed 209 have had live ammo in him, and it doesn't make any sense. And the whole idea they've said later is that Jones is so arrogant and so full of himself and cares so little about what the consequences are. He was willing to operate Ed 209 with live ammo because he really just didn't think anything bad would happen. And if it did, so fucking what? You know? So, yeah, Jones is definitely set up to be a way worse per person than Morton is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we see Morton at home and I really, really like this scene. Josh, I'll, I'll toss it back to you again. I'm sure you do as well. Oh, yeah, this scene's so fucking awesome when he's doing a bunch of blow with uh, the models. <laughs> the best line, though, 
in this entire scene is when <laughs> Clarence shows up and he goes, Bitches, leave. How you doing? Uh, 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 bitches, leave. Uh, that you, is the best line in the movie. I'm going to make this even yeah. funnier for the two of you because I laughed my ass off hearing about this. Miguel Ferrer told this story. The others have repeated it as well. Verhoeven was from the Netherlands. First English film he'd ever directed. There was still a lot of English language stuff he didn't – like he understood what was happening. He knows how to speak English. But there was a lot of English like slang and things he didn't really quite get or understand. And a lot of them got the impression that he didn't quite get that bitch is a derogatory term. And it's not just like a slang word for women. Um, because when they got to the point where they were doing the setup and rehearsal for that scene, Verhoeven completely flat, no comedy intended, just kept referring to those two women as bitches. He, <laughs> when he was giving them their direction, he's just like, okay, now bitches, you do this and bitches, you do that. And when he says this, the bitches, you leave. Okay. And this, this kind of stuff. And apparently, um, Miguel Ferrer and, and, um, Kurtwood Smith, were just just broken down, laughing their asses off the, the whole the whole time. They could not control them, themselves laughing, and and Verhoeven is just totally pan. Like I don't even understand what I'm saying that you find funny. I, I thought that was so great though. Imagine him directing these women, saying, "Bitches do this, bitches do that." You know, now bitches leave, right? And then bitches leave, right? Exactly. So Clarence just shoots the shit out of Morton's legs and then pops in his favorite DVD. Hello, buddy boy. Dick Jones here. I guess you're on your knees about now, begging for your life. Pathetic. You don't feel so cocky now, do you, Bob? Whatever he's paying you, I'll double it right now. You know what the tragedy is here, Bob? We could have been friends. Yeah. <laughs> He pops in Samurai Cop. Oh my god. Samurai Cop. Which has recently been restored. Um. Josh, hey Josh. Do you know what katana means? What does katana mean? It means Japanese sword. <laughs> it means Japanese sword. What if he really asked Morton that? He's like, hey Morton, do you know what katana means? It means oh, Japanese sword. This is another one. Uh, Ronnie Cox, who played Stick Jones, has done this with Verhoeven more than once. They did it again when they made Total Recall together. Oh, yeah. There are multiple moments during Total Recall where Schwarzenegger's character, Doug, or whatever the alternate name is for Doug. I'm Detective John Kimball. Uh, they watch video clips that Dick Jones appeared. Or not Dick Jones, but in that movie, he's... Uh, <laughs> Oh, now I'm blanking on his character. Uh, uh, I'm a cop, you idiot! He's got. They gave him a Dutch name for Total Recall. What is it? Vanderhagen or something like that. Cohagen. Yeah, no, not Cohagen. He's the other character. Whatever his name is, anyway. Doesn't they, matter. <laughs> yeah, they see they see a bunch of uh, videos of him. But yeah, it's another kind of Verhoeven trope. He likes seeing these these shared video clips. If here's a video of the bad guy telling you something. <laughs> so yeah, he gets his leg shot out. Uh, Clarence is plays it pretty cool. Like this is just this is just what he does for fun. He's so good at this. He just sets down a grenade. This is the big reveal that the OCP are in league with Clarence and his goons. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It almost it almost seems like a good idea in some ways early on that like, oh my God, if Detroit's really this fucked up and the city can't manage it, maybe it's a better idea. This company is here to try to clean up the mess. And then it becomes obvious that the company is in league with the people who are making the city a mess so that they can make the city worse than it would have been otherwise to justify the way they're handling the police. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, and Morton just gets blowed up. 
Yes, he does. And and uh, Clarence Clarence removes the pin from the grenade with his tongue, which Curlwood <laughs> oh, yeah. Smith has said was his idea. He just thought it would look funny and cool. He just decided in the moment that he would do it. And Verhoeven was like, yeah, do it. It's such a nice yeah. touch to add to the it creep is. level. It is, exactly. He was absolutely, Kurtwood Smith was absolutely right. <laughs> this guy, so I got to speak to Kurtwood Smith, Clarence. I know you guys already have, but so I just want to say my piece a little bit. He is not a huge guy. He's not a buff guy. He's not scary in that way. But this guy is intimidating because he has the eyes of a psycho. Yeah. Like, yes, he's yeah. kind of balding with a receding hairline. And like he looks maybe like, at a glance, maybe someone that would work in an office. But he he's fucking crazy. You can see it in his eyes. Yeah. Like, he is crazy. He's really a very good actor. I mean, like I said, he was a theatrical actor before this. He'd been doing stagecraft in New York City. Like, he really, much in the same way that Hugo Weaving brought that kind of performance to the way he played V. Um, you know, that, that he, Kurt Smith really brought a sort of theatrical flair to the way he portrayed Clarence Boddicker. I like it. Yeah. I don't want to fuck with you, son. But I got the connection. I got the sales organization. I got the muscle to shove enough of this factory so far up your stupid wop ass that you'll shit snow for a year. Mikey, blow this cocksucker's head off. Ooh, guns, guns, guns. Come on, Sal. Tigers are playing. Two nights. I never miss a game. And then the next scene is the, the Coke factory, right? Yes, it is. So on the topic of Clarence, uh, Robocop catches up with him eventually at, at the office, I guess, um, in this cocaine warehouse. Steve, what goes down in the cocaine warehouse? So they established a little earlier in the film, actually, during this, right in the lead up to this scene where Murphy gets murdered, that um, Clarence's gang robs banks, but they're not robbing banks to keep the money. They're actually using the money to buy drugs, which they then sell at a much higher rate of profit. And um, so Clarence is at a, basically a cocaine factory in a warehouse having a Get meeting. Get your fingers with the, out of my brandy. <laughs> right? Have a, having a meeting with the guy who runs the place trying to negotiate a price on um, a big load of, of cocaine. And they're not really specific about it, but if you pay enough attention to this and other details, you kind of get the impression that Clarence's problem here is all that money that got burnt at the beginning of the film when they were robbing the bank was money they were going to use to buy these drugs with, and now they have less of it. So Clarence needs to get a deal from this guy because they don't have enough money to pay the normal price. And it turns into a bit of a disagreement that involves this other dude and Clarence's people all pulling their guns at each other. I think it's an important side note to note. This whole thing takes place at, at a pretty derelict warehouse somewhere in Metro Detroit. And there's a lot of other ones. They keep sort of revisiting these derelict warehouses. And that was, that was an aesthetic meant to underline the idea that like Detroit was once this great manufacturing city, but by the late eighties, the manufacturing was really, really going away. It was falling apart. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the documentary called uh, Roger and Me made by Michael Moore, but it takes place like right at the same time this movie was made. They shot this movie during the summer of 86. It's all about how GM at the time was closing down factories in a in a uh, Michigan city near Detroit called Flint and how losing those factories was destroying these communities. I mean, Flint today is still terrible. You may have seen news stories recently. Flint right now, 2020, does not have clean drinking water. The city is so fucked up, their pipes are leaching shit into their water. Um, and it's been going on for years. The state government has not fixed it. It's a huge issue. 
So it was really meant to underline that like, here's this shining star. There was a point at which in the early to mid 1900s, Detroit was the most, one of the most populated cities in the country. They had this huge manufacturing base and all of a sudden by the late eighties, like 80% of it was gone. And that, that's what was contributing to this huge spike in crime is like, there's no more industry there. All these people are employed, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so they're in this, this abandoned warehouse having this meeting over the cocaine and, and Robocop manages to find them there. And of course it turns into a gigantic shootout between Robocop and the members of these various gangs. One funny, I think funny side note about this, this particular scene, they meant for that shootout to be a little bit more drawn out and not quite as fast paced. But basically every single one of the automatic prop guns they were using to shoot the scene kept jamming and they couldn't get more than like three to four seconds worth of usable footage per roll before somebody's gun would jam and they'd have to cut. So they ended up just getting what they could and cutting the scene together to look the way it did, hmm. which I think is kind of amusing. <laughs> I think it's it's pretty well for what it is. Like it is. It, it comes out well. Yeah. So – With a lot of things in this movie, things ended up working out despite these like weird issues that you bring up. Right. And uh, so RoboCop does catch up with Clarence and it's it's kind of like this gratifying moment because of what Clarence did to him earlier. Yeah. But uh, he doesn't just kill him, but he kind of just smacks him around a little bit. Josh throws him through glass. (laughs) Throws him through glass. He like gets a little bit cut up, picks him up, throws him through another pane of glass. Picks him up, does it again. He does want to kill him, though. And the only reason he doesn't, I think, is because Clarence reminds him that he has to obey his directives. Yeah, you're a cop. You cocksuckers! I work for Dick Jones! Dick Jones! He's the number two guy at OCP! OCP runs the cops! You're a cop! Yeah. You're a cop. (laughs) And not only that, Clarence spills his guts to Robocop, confesses everything. Yeah, what the hell, man? What kind of crime boss are you? Fucking snitch. (laughs) I I think he just must have figured that the only way he was going to save his life is by throwing Dick under the bus or or saying, you know, know, Dick controls you and I work for him too. You can't kill me. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if he could technically directive for him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny thinking about it from that perspective because obviously Dick could have had anyone he wanted included in Directive 4. He just only chose to apply it to officers of OCP. Like, it's kind of weird that he wouldn't have sort of hidden a directive in there to say Clarence, too. Although, I guess you have to have someone else do the programming. And at some point, somebody would have asked, like, why? Why are you putting in a directive to have this, this <laughs> cop not kill this guy who's a huge criminal? So. <laughs> well, it- you know, it may have also worked out where, like, maybe uh, Clarence became, becomes a loose end at some point and needs to be taken down. Yeah, 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 that's just a good point. Absolutely. Speaking of which, so Robocop next, after he's arrested Clarence and pretty much all of his gang, uh, he goes to confront Dick Jones because Clarence confessed. Give me my fucking phone call. <laughs> that scene was the first scene that Kurtwood Smith shot for the movie. They'd already been shooting for a few weeks, but it was the first scene they shot with Kurtwood. And um, the original scripting for it, the only thing he was going to do was just say, give me my phone call. And um, it was it was Kurtwood's idea 
to change the line and make it more aggressive and to have him deliver it more aggressively and say, give me my fucking phone call. But it was also Kurtwood's idea to have him spit the blood onto the, the, the booking sheet. The, into it's the book. such a good call. It Every, really was. Well, I, the more you tell me about like his uh, artistic uh, uh, decisions, it, just, it makes the character way more awesome. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Kurtwood's an yeah. amazing guy, amazing actor. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it made the scene. Great guy. Love him. Right. <laughs> Wanting to shove a, a bunch of coke up your nose and a boot up your ass. Lego my ego. <laughs> hey, Lego my foot in your ass. <laughs> it's a 70s show reference. It is. Uh, you know, and I think that it's kind of funny. You know, I, I, I get it because if you look at his resume, a lot of what's on it is stuff that younger people especially just wouldn't even be familiar with. But he's been acting theatrically and in film and television since at least the early 70s. And, and RoboCop in that 70s show just ended up being the two things everyone recognizes him from. So, yeah, then uh, RoboCop goes to uh, arrest Dick Jones, and we get the big reveal of what Directive 4 is, which is uh, you can't arrest uh, anybody that works for OCP. What's the matter, officer? I'll tell you what's the matter. It's a little insurance policy called Directive 4. My little contribution to your psychological profile. Any attempt to arrest a senior officer of OCP uh, results in shutdown. Uh, what did you think? That you were an ordinary police officer? You're our product. And we can't very well have our products turning against us, can we? He says officers of OCP. So I always got the impression it's like the upper executive staff is protected, but no one else necessarily is. Yeah, I guess you're right. Oh, okay. Yeah. It kind of scrambles his system a little bit, and that's when Dick Jones calls out Ed 209 and fucks RoboCop up a good bit. So we get to see something that I think we've kind of wanted to see since the beginning of the movie. You know, you see, you're introduced to Ed 209 first, and then RoboCop, who is clearly our protagonist, they face off, and Ed 209 just basically kicks the shit out of RoboCop for the most part. It, yeah, it, it ends up being a pretty good fight, I think. Like, Ed 209 gets a jump on him, but you've also got to remember that at the moment Dick brings Ed into the room, he's already semi-crippled RoboCop through through Command 4. Like, cause when, when Robo goes to try to arrest him and the programming kicks in, suddenly he, like, collapses. So, you know, Ed, he, Dick, Dick is using this opportunity. He waits until Robo's not even really capable of defending himself and then brings Ed 209 into the room. But then Robo manages to, to draw him into the staircase and is able to force him to shoot his own his own arm off. That's kind of a funny one. They talked about making that effect work. Technically speaking, and you can see it if you look at the models, Ed 209's arms should not have been able to point at each other like that because his head's in the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in order to get that effect, they shot it in a way where you couldn't see the part where the arm joins the body, and they just kind of disconnected it so that... Peter could twist the arm to make Ed 209 shoot himself in the other arm. Um, How big was that model? It depends on which one you're talking about. They built a few mock-ups that were pretty close to, to full size, but there were also other models that were only a couple of inches high. When you get to the part where he rolls down the stairs, it's a model that was only a few inches a few inches high, but um, the, the detail level 
is fucking astonishing, especially when you watch the the, the featurette stuff. They talk about it. Little things you don't even notice, like parts where different joints slide and and move and join in ways that you didn't necessarily notice. That if you look at from behind the at the top back of the lower piece of his leg, there's this component that spins like the axle on a car. You wouldn't even notice it was there, but they had to build a whole separate mechanism in to make it spin like that in separate pieces. And they shot the model stuff in stop motion. Like you can imagine this thing spinning, how much work they've got all these separate pieces you've got to operate. It's really incredible. And then you get to the part where Ed 209 eventually falls down the stairs. They did that with a, a model, like I said, it's a few inches. They built a mock-up staircase to scale and put the model inside of it. And they had they had one foot teetering over the, the head of the stairs and they had the other foot kind of behind him. That second foot was was pinned with a pin you can't see. And they started the camera and they went through the motion. And then when they got to the point where they wanted him to fall, they just pulled the pin and got the footage of the model rolling down the stairs, which which looks great. But then there's this moment where Ed 209's on his back halfway down the, the stairwell, freaking the fuck out that it can't get back up, making all these insane noises. And it's kicking and moving its arms and flailing and stuff. And you think about the fact that that was shot in stop motion. It probably took them days, days to shoot eight seconds of the Ed 209 fucking up flipping out in the staircase really neat stuff <laughs> I like his screech yeah, yeah. They, com- they combined the sounds of a jaguar a pig and I think like a person crying and like melded them together to make to get this I don't know why it's really strange it sounds like an animal but yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> And then we get a nice moment where Robocop is greeted by his fellow police officers. Oh, it's very friendly. With a loving embrace. (laughs) Right? Because Dick has now told the rest of the department that that Robocop has gone on a rampage and needs to be killed. Some of them won't do it, but I think that's only like three of them. Yeah. Yeah, most of them are just like, whatever, we were told to kill this, this other cop, so let's do it. Yeah, there's a small army of police officers, and they greet Robocop as he enters the parking structure of OCP. And they basically just unload on him like like he's fucking Alex Murphy with <laughs> Clarence. <laughs> I, I didn't mention it earlier, but the, the, the creation of the OCP building is a pretty neat thing for this movie. They the, the exterior of that was really the exterior of the Dallas City Hall. And Dallas City Hall is only three or four levels high, and they wanted it to look like an 80-story building. Um, they used a lot of matte painting yeah. in this movie. You can see the mats. They're nice. They yeah, they're really very good. nice. I think it's one of the better examples of them. But yeah, and, and like it's very interesting to watch how that works. And you, you basically double expose the film, you know, or you get a shot of the mat being there and then a shot of the building being there and you blend them. And um, then more of it when you get inside, there's the, the shots of the elevators going up and down and they wanted to make it look like they were going up and down inside of an 80-story building. A lot of that is, is just matte and composite work and art. It's, it's really very cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Robocop ex- uh, escapes with the help of Lewis. He, he does, but he is thoroughly fucked up. He I is. mean, I want to make is. sure that point is illustrated. Like, this dude can, like, barely walk by the end of it. Right. But he does survive it and is able to sort of fix himself semi. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Lewis is, is still loyal to him. And uh, I guess right after all these cops are done shooting Robocop... Like, that's their last act before they go on strike, I think. Yeah, right? right? Like, yeah. let's blast the fuck out of this robot. Tomorrow, we gotta go on strike. Fucking A. And Lewis and him escape to yet another abandoned warehouse, what looks like it might have been a foundry. 
Is it not the same one from the beginning? It, I I get the impression it is. It's the same facility where Alice was murdered to begin with. Man. Yeah. The amount of, like, PTSD this guy must be going through. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing's so fucked up. And like we were talking about before, the dude's only got, like, part of his brain left anyway. So this is going to be a very messed up thing. He is becoming, like, more and more human, I, I feel. And we... We kind of see that by, like, the way he talks and the way he starts to react to things. That's a really astute observation. I mean that sincerely. Weller talks a little bit in some of his interviews about how he actually did change the way he voiced the character closer to the end of the film. Not because they were unhappy with the earlier one, but because he wanted to underline that in the course of the story that Murphy had found a piece of his humanity again. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we see that. And it's it's more visually told to us when he takes the mask off. That's another oh. thing I want to make one mention of. I mean, well, a couple, really. First of all, that effect is astonishing. It's fucking yeah, astonishing. It's amazing. It really, that looks absolutely convincing. A hundred percent it does. It really does unsettling. look like. Unsettling. Right, it is. It's very, very unsettling. I'm going to make it a little more unsettling because it, it took me years, years to realize this was the case. They didn't put a robotic, a metal case around the back of Murphy's skull. What's yeah, there? No, it looks like they stretched his face over something. Ex- yeah. Exactly, a hundred percent, Josh. There's there's nothing left of Murphy's actual head or skull there. They literally took his face off his body and stretched it over the front of this machine so that he would still have his own human face. And I want I his face. Right. Off. I don't know why they didn't touch touch on this in the movie conceptually, but the idea was supposed to be. They figured that if something, even with only part of a human brain, woke up and saw what it looked like as just a cyborg, that it would just have a complete psychotic breakdown and wouldn't be able to function. And the idea behind keeping his face was so that he would have some connection to his organic past and the ability to identify himself as a really unique person or being. But yeah, I mean, like, this is a cyborg that's had the skin from Alex Murphy's face stretched over the front of it. And that is the creepiest fucking thing to think about. And if you look at it, you can see, and I'm sure Josh noticed too, because he brought it up. You can see where they've literally just pinned the skin to to the, to the, to this, this cyborg's face, just like this is how they do facelifts. Basically they lift the additional skin and pin it back and then stitch, stitch what's left and cut the extra out. So like, yeah, it's, 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 it's really, yeah, exactly. Your face is disgusting. Right. Like that's, that's, uh, it's really fucked up to think about what they did to this human being. And it's no wonder that like he would be really messed up as a result of it. <laughs> it really, that's another thing that really pissed me off about the remake because it looks nothing like this. No. And yeah, I agree with you. I, and, and it's really strange to me. I guess I understand why they did it, but to your point, Josh, that like in the second one, they really did just put his brain in this robot's body and like, it's still him. He knows who he is. You know, he's aware yeah. of his wife and child. It's not quite the same idea. Well, it misses all the important points yeah. of this movie. And I mean, I don't even know if I would want it to retread those because this movie is already great. So yeah. you don't necessarily need, but you know, the parts about this person finding their humanity, the, you know, the satire elements, the, the way it speaks to. And what even is a capitalism. person? You right. know, absolutely. Yeah. And the one thing that was kind of an interesting carryover, I thought they shot us or scripted a scene they may not have shot for this film that, that didn't, at least didn't make it into the final version of the movie where. When when Robo goes home to, to see his fan to find the house, really, he doesn't even know he's going there to see his family, that his wife and his kid are still there, and so is the dog. And the dog's the only one who recognizes him. And they cut it out of the original, and, and a scene almost exactly like it ended up being used in the remake. Uh, 
there's kind of a lot going on. I think it's better like left out. Yeah, no, I agree. They yeah. they doing it the way they did was was better. Uh, so yeah, Dick Jones basically sends Clarence to go stop RoboCop. Uh, we know that they're working together at this point. But what I think is interesting, and Josh, maybe you can speak to this bit, is when Clarence like finds his crew and like what's going on. Like I I think that's a really fun and kind of funny scene. Oh yeah, this is like one of the better scenes. uh, The riots going on because all the cops are on strike and everybody's just destroying everything. Yeah, it's a complete chaos. But like their goons, like they don't seem to really mind it. They're just still like watching TV and like a storefront window. They love this. Emil's just sitting on the bumper of a car watching that stupid show on TV. (laughs) Like this is exactly the world these guys want. This is perfect for them. Uh, And then. Clarence shows up and breaks out the, uh, uh, hold on, I got it written down here. The Cobra Assault Cannon. Yeah, he's gotten this from OCP. They've gotten more than one of them from OCP. There's a, d- during that part where he's, he's about to be sent out by Dick, he's talking to Dick and he's like, I'm going to need a fucking armory if you expect me to blow this Robocop. He just survived barely, but he just survived a fight with Ed 209 and being shot up by the entire police force. Like, you expect me to kill him. I need something huge. And Dick's response is, I can't remember the exact line, but basically something to the effect of we're the military. It's like, Clarence is- asks if he has access to mili- military-grade weapons, to which Dick Jones says, we practically are the military. Right. Yeah. And like, first of all, Clarence should know that because this company is a huge contractor <laughs> of weapons to the military. <laughs> Good point. But like, like, secondly, how is it possible Dick can just pull these advanced military weapons from the company's stash and give them to a gang without anyone else noticing? Number two in command, bro. Yeah, I mean, I he guess does whatever like, he wants. You know, one of my favorite parts in Nolan's Batman trilogy is the part where that the underling dude, the dickhead accountant, tries to blackmail Lucius by saying he's figured out who Batman is. And it's like, it makes total sense. Like, there's only there's a limited amount of time you can realistically hide this kind of thing. Eventually, somebody's going to find it. Like, it, it, it doesn't, it, I mean, to me, ultimately, I think he'd get caught, but whatever. Like, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about The Dark Knight Rises, and I think we might have to do a podcast on that at oh, some yeah. point. Oh, yeah. The third one, I may not be entirely nice about, <laughs> but the first two, I love. That's why we got to do a podcast on it. It is definitely the rise of Skywalker. <laughs> right? Uh, hey, now. I, and, and I do actually, I, I, for the most part, actually like the new Star Wars movies. I will say, I'm, Josh, if you don't, that's fine. But like, I, I'm not, I'm not as critical about them as a lot of other people are. I'm not either. They're fun. They're definitely flawed, but they've got a lot of good things going on. Everybody shits on them, and I tend to defend them to an extent. I'd agree with you. I, I will also admit they're flawed. They're things I would have changed if I'd been left in church, but they're really not bad. I, I vastly prefer them to the prequels, but I'm not going to get on that rant right now. <laughs> yeah, that's a different rant for a different time. Right. Yeah, that's when we do uh, podcast episodes on the prequels. We'll get into that. Right. Holy shit. Please invite me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the city's going bananas. Clarence's gang has these huge fucking guns that just like blow up whatever they hit. Like it's some kind of grenade launcher of some kind i don't really understand what yeah, they do super high velocity high power rounds whatever just basically blows up anything you shoot at it incendiary rounds yeah and apparently those functioned and ray wise uh talked in one of his interviews he's the guy that plays leon talked in one of his interviews about how they really were walking around well i should say so i should rewind half a step i didn't realize this when they got to that scene where they were doing the, the riot stuff 
they found a neighborhood, like a whole neighborhood somewhere in or near Dallas that was literally empty and being and waiting to be torn down. So they, they, they were able to use this neighborhood to shoot that, that stuff because it meant they could blow up buildings and tear down houses and do whatever they wanted because no one, no one cared. So Ray Wise is saying that he and Kurtwood and some of the other guys, they had some props that worked and some that didn't, but they would take the working ones and they would just fire them at shit. They'd blow stuff up. Wait, you're telling me that these were actual operational weapons? Some of them were. Um, Kurtwood added an additional note to that to say that in a lot of those scenes, what they were walking around with was like a fiberglass or plastic version that didn't function at all. And then it was kind of difficult actually to maintain the appearance that the lightweight one was just as heavy as the real one. But they had something like one or two of these things that really did function. I, I don't think they're real weapons. I think they were custom made for, for the production. But there are firearms people that can make almost any kind of gun you can come up with as long as it's physically possible to produce it. They can make it. And they had these custom made for the production. And, and they two or one or two of them, something like that really did function. And they, they would, they were shooting them at stuff. It That's was, wild. It really is. But, you know, it makes total sense because 87 especially, the only other option is you have the guy pretend you're shooting and then you have someone else set off an explosive in the building, in which case the timing might not be right. Or you do it in CG, but 87 CG is kind of, eh, I don't know if you can pull this off. <laughs> like, you know, so pretty cool. And then he also added to that later on toward the end of the film when they're they filming like in the quarry. Um The assistant directors and some of the other people had golf carts they were using to get around the production on. Kurtwood and Ray apparently took some of the prop guns and just stole the golf carts and were running around shooting stuff from the golf carts. <laughs> and the the other people involved in this production were not happy about it. Apparently, Ray Wise and Kurtwood Smith both got talking tos from the assistant directors about how they're like, you can't keep taking my cart, you know, and you can't keep shooting stuff. And they they just kept doing it. <laughs> it was too late in the production for them to get fired. So they're like, whatever. <laughs> Tell me, Mr. Verhoeven. Right. Do you fly? Right. <laughs> oh, but fun stuff. Oh. So these, the gang of goons, Clarence and the gang, they go after Robocop. They can track him, so they know where he is. He's at the abandoned mill. Yeah. And we get kind of our big final action scene. Uh, Josh, I'm sure you have some points you'd like to touch on here. Okay, yeah. He starts wiping out the goons. Now... One of one of the goons is obviously a mill who tries to run down Robocop but runs right into a toxic waste that. And I wanna ask you guys, <laughs> is this the coolest death in all of movie history? Because to me it is. I think it absolutely is, but the the funniest part about this to me is they shot two versions of that. One where it ends the way it ends, which I'll let you talk about in a second, and and a second version where he doesn't get hit, the car goes around him instead. And this, the second version is what got used in the TV edits. And it didn't occur to me until I was already in my teens that the first two or three times I'd seen this movie, it was a TV edit. And the reason I was able to realize that, in addition to some other differences, is when it got to this scene. I didn't realize this version of this scene existed until like the fifth or sixth time I'd seen this movie. And I was like, holy shit, I didn't know that. I, like, what happened? It's totally different. <laughs> <laughs> the way he looks is amazing. It's yeah. fucking amazing. It's one of the most remembered scenes from any 80s movie. Yeah. Is when the guy gets mutated and he's like all fucked up and he's like, help me. Anything from the 80s involving like toxic waste and mutations and deaths just always like even the toxic Avenger somehow is Classic. just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love uh, 
uh, Leon's reaction where he's just like, don't touch me, man. Be mad, right? <laughs> Honestly, that's how I'd be. Steve, if you ever like fell in some toxic ways and you were like, help me, I'd be like, don't touch me, man. I would immediately don't assume no me, one man. I know would get anywhere near me. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know a single person who would hang around. <laughs> and when the car hits him, he's just liquefied. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it absolutely just kind of turns him into liquid if you're watching the version of the film that has that in it, yeah. Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, you have to. The European version, the Robocop doesn't get revenge on the bullies at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a real Three Ninjas situation. There, there, there was also an alternate of Clarence's death where you see less of him getting stabbed by the, the, the whatever you want to call it, the encryption. The data knob. spike? <laughs> right. Data spike, bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, we kind of get the big fight and, you know, Robocop shooting people and uh, the, the less important henchmen get taken out, of course. Robocop does eventually corner Clarence in a way, right? He catches up to him. Clarence is about to kill Lewis. Yeah, that's what I, Yeah, exactly. Why don't you go ahead, Josh? Oh, uh, Cl- uh, Clarence <clears throat> shoots up Lewis pretty good. And right before he delivers the killing blow, Robocop shows up walking on water Jesus style. And uh, confronts Clarence. Clarence gets cocky because he sees Leon going towards a, a higher tower. So that's when he drops his gun, tries to keep, keep uh, Robocop distracted long enough for uh, Leon to do what he's going to do. And what does he do to him, Steve? Uh, Leon gets blown up, basically. <laughs> he's kind of blown off this crane tower. But not before dropping a, a shit ton of, like, steel beams on Robocop. It's true, yeah. Down. He drops a bunch of beams on him, which pins Robo to the ground. And uh, Ray Wise has said that they used a dummy of him, obviously, for the explosion. And they put the dummy in the prop clothes that he'd been wearing up to that point. And he still has the clothes that were on the dummy when they blew it up. They're in his closet, his bedroom closet, he says. Which I think is it's pretty awesome. awesome. Right? <laughs> Let's go let he catch I that. love right? Clarence's reaction to Leon exploding when you see that just pure, like, oh, fuck, I gotta do this by myself. I've lost everybody I showed up here with. He's, like, so fucking pissed. <laughs> yeah, like, every single one of his gang is now gone. That he uh, goes in to finish the job himself with a, a metal pipe, impales Robocop, and Robocop stabs him in the fucking neck uh, with the data spike, and it's awesome. Like, which is uh, the thing is, I, 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 it's really weird the way a lot of people try to kill Robocop, because, like, the only part of him that's still organic is this little bit of brain and the skin on the front of his face. Like, fine, you've destroyed his inner mechanism, but they'll just, they'll just put his head on a different body. Like, what difference does it make? All, the only thing you destroyed were mechanical and computer parts. Those are replaceable. Like, yeah, we, we learned that in RoboCop 2 when he gets... Uh, oh my god, that's so good. It's so good, that part. The one part I remember exactly. where he gets taken apart. Yes. Yeah. I was talking to Josh about that. I couldn't remember if he gets taken apart in RoboCop 2 or if I'm thinking of Short Circuit 2. Oh, well, the Short Circuit, the dude, the first time I saw Short Circuit 2 as a kid, that part made me so upset. I felt so bad for Johnny 5. So that did happen in Short Circuit. Yeah, there's a part where they take Johnny apart, too. Okay, okay. Yeah, and yeah, but um, look, in 2, the way they do it, like, I, you still feel horrible because you realize that even though he's mostly artificial, there's still this immense psychological trauma <laughs> that goes along with all of this. But yeah, like, you can't really kill him that way. They'll just put him back together. In fact, right at the end, right at the end, uh, after he's killed Clarence, 
he kind of looks, he's pinned down. He kind of looks over at Lewis and goes, are you still alive? And then he says, don't worry, they'll fix you. So even he knows that like, you're not necessarily dead. <laughs> well, it's the way he delivers that line that makes it sound so sinister. He's like, they fix everything. Oh, a mess. They'll fix you. They fix everything. Yeah, that's what it is. They fix everything. What does he mean? Does he mean that she's going to be a RoboCop lady? Lady RoboCop? I, I don't think that was necessarily what Murphy's character intended by the line, but there was a moment where they discussed the idea of that happening. They didn't They never wrote it into the script, but it was talked about. Damn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like cool. to think it looks exactly like RoboCop, but with long hair. Right? And boobs. <laughs> In fact, somebody and asked boobs, her, yeah. <laughs> right? Somebody asked her during one of the panels whether or not she was she was upset that the story never went that way, and she's absolutely not. She's like, I could never do what Peter did. If they had told me I was going to need to be in this suit, I would never have shown up again. Right? I want to speak to her. I what I like about her character in the movie is that one, she's not a love interest, so they're yeah. really glad they didn't go that route. Right. And two, she doesn't just. She's not killed to be motivation for the main character. Right. That would have been so easy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, again, this is why Verhoeven wanted her to be desexualized as much as possible and why he ultimately decided there definitely shouldn't be any kind of – like her interest in Murphy is, is human. You know, she feels she feels for the part of him that, that's still Alex that's there. It's not, a, it's not a romantic thing. I mean, Joe kind of sexualizes her a little bit. She was sweet. <laughs> right? It's true. <laughs> I took her out. I took her out. Oh, <laughs> uh, and he gets kind of thrown off a roof at the end as revenge for that, so. Yeah, fuck him. Yeah. You know, right? <laughs> uh. So Robocop does defeat this, uh, this, this fellow Clarence here with Red Foreman or whatever. <laughs> 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 and he goes to to take down the guy that's actually in charge, Dick Jones. Steve, what goes down? So Robo gets unpinned somehow or other, and he, he makes his way back to OCP and up to the board me- room where they're having another one of their meetings. Oh, well, uh, before the boardroom, actually, I forgot. He gets a little bit of revenge with uh, Ed 209. Wait, why am I skipping over that in my brain? So when Robocop goes to the OCP building... He has one of those big-ass fucking guns. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he gets to the building, and he basically just blows Ed 209 <laughs> off his legs. It's That's a great scene, right? It's a great scene, and it just leaves the two little legs behind, kind of slumped over. The Robocop at full power, bitch. Right? <laughs> you know, and I... Like, uh, they revisit that fight in, in 2 also, and I think the way they do it in 2 is even better. It's so entertaining. Oh. But, uh... I don't remember that at all, but... Right? And it's... Well, in fairness, the version in 2 is not really an Ed 209. It's an Ed 209 body with Tom Noonan's brain inside of it, but we'll, we'll get to that when we get to 2. What the fuck? Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's actually really fun. I like it. But, in any case... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he blows up an N209, he goes back inside, he goes up to the boardroom where they're having a meeting, and he wants to make a second attempt at arresting Dick Jones. Dick, who is a dick, and a gigantic coward, um, immediately uses the old man as a human shield. But Robocop then explains that this guy's wanted for all kinds of stuff, and he's done all this bad shit, but that Robo's not allowed to take him in because he's still an officer of, of OCP. So the old man is clever enough to say, Dick, you're fired. Well, he's got a gun held to his head, and that's all Robo needs. Because as soon as as soon as the old man has said that, this guy no longer works for OCP. Thank you. Thank you, right? Robo says thank you, <laughs> and just blows Dick out the window. 
Blows dick. <laughs> right? <laughs> he just shoots him so hard he goes flying out the window. A um, couple of things about this. I'd actually never really noticed it before, but you noticed yesterday that there's a moment, a frame or two or three, during the scene where Dick is falling out the window where it looks really strange and it almost <laughs> looks like his arms have stretched. Yeah. Ironically enough, Corey pointed this out to me via text while I was literally in the middle of watching a featurette about the special effects work. <laughs> Like 13 seconds after I got that text, I got to a segment in this featurette about how they shot that scene. It was, <laughs> it was that short. And it turns out that in order to try to make the effect look right, they built, they took body molds of Ronnie Cox, then built a rubber version of them, and then miniaturized the model. So they ended up with a miniature rubber and clay model of Ronnie Cox and used it to get the composite shots to make it look like it was falling out the window. And in motion, at least for me, it looks good enough that I'd never noticed it was weird after all these years. I, the face looks a little funny, but I'd never caught the arms. And they just kind of figured the effect looked good enough that in motion for three seconds on screen, no one would notice. But you caught it. You did catch it. But it is it is pretty, pretty cool. And for the most part, I think the effect is fun. He falls out the window all the way to the ground. But then the second note... Um, I'd never heard this before, but Ronnie Cox stated in an interview that I hadn't seen until recently that the squibs they used on him were so powerful, way more powerful than what he thought. And apparently he'd worked with them before and thought he knew what, what to expect, that they actually physically hurt, like like knocked the air out of him. And that for, for quite a little while after the moment they shot him, the scene with him getting shot, he was in real physical pain. It took the better part of a day or two for him to start feeling better again. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Josh. So when he falls out of the window, we get the effect that Steve just covered very thoroughly. Which do you like better? The villain at the end of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 falling or this <laughs> version of the villain falling? Well, obviously, I got to get RoboCop, but that is a very good question. <laughs> it's really See, not. this one does the smart thing. It cuts away before he hits the ground. Yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, it hangs on the shot and then he just disappears. It never shows him splash in the water very That's famously. <laughs> he just yeah, he just vanishes from the screen. <laughs> anyway, Robocop is complimented on his fine shooting. Good By, shooting. Uh, Colonel Cochran. Uh, wait, Colonel Cochran? wait till Robocop finds out that Colonel Cochran's got part of Stonehenge downstairs. Oh my god. <laughs> god, why is Season of the Witch so stupid? It's not even a Halloween movie, it's about masks. It's ridiculous. Josh did a whole video about it. Right, I bet. <laughs> uh, Robocop is asked, uh, what's your name, son? Nice shooting, son. What's your name? Murphy. He says Murphy instead of Robocop. But the text tells us otherwise. It, the movie just ends and it says Robocop. Yeah, right? <laughs> it almost undermines him in a way. Well, I mean, you know, I like... Because I, I, that's been my whole thing is he's, my opinion at least, he's he's neither. He's really, he's not Murphy anymore. He's never going to be. He's got like an eighth of what used to be Alex Murphy's brain and some sort of fragments of his memories. So, but I mean, the reality is, is because of that, he's in this weird nether zone. He's in limbo as a person. He's not, he's not a person, but he is a person. He's Alex Murphy, but he's Robocop. He's, he's a he, little. He's Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the right way to be looking at it. He's a little bit of, he's a little bit of both and a lot of neither. Like it's, yeah. So it's, it's very like, how do you credit him? But no, yeah, it is amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into ratings, did you guys have any final thoughts about the movie itself? Rob Botton, the guy that did the suit design, a lot of the special effects work, 
had a huge, 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 huge fight with Paul Verhoeven about how much they should reveal of Murphy's face with the mask off. Boughton was concerned the effect wouldn't look right. He wanted it done very dimly and Verhoeven disagreed. He wanted everyone in the audience to be able to see everything. Uh, Verhoeven, I think, turned out to be right. In fact, I'm sure that they both feel that way because... <laughs> yeah, um, I hope so. At the end, after... The two of them had such a huge fight about it, they didn't speak during the remainder of the production after the initial fight occurred. And then they had their final screenings, their production screenings before the release. And it looked so good that the two of them immediately made up at the screening. And then Boughton came back to work with Fairhoven again on his next movie, Total Recall, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. And um, kind I of just an- want to say, though, about him being unmasked, they never addressed the chin piece. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> like, it's true. He just unscrews the visor and then you could see his full face. Right. Verhoeven wanted it to look that way. Part of the reason he wanted Weller aside from Weller's slim physique was because of the way his jawline looked, because they knew you were going to spend most of the movie looking at the lower half of his face. It is a good jawline. It is a good jawline. (laughs) Kind of a weird note. They never tell you in the movie specifically when it takes place, but there was one, I think, teaser trailer and at least one advertisement for the movie's release on home video where they allude to the fact that the movie is supposed to be set in 1991. Um, It's kind of funny, but they never do it otherwise. And then I don't... I, I had a hard time finding any any information about it. I can't find any clips. I'm going to have to do some more digging. But apparently, I'd completely forgotten this. For whatever fucking reason, the studio paid Richard Nixon, who was still alive at the time, $25,000 to promote this movie on home video, and he did it. Um, wow. So I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get some more information about this. Even the, the Arrow home video release doesn't have any of the content. So I'm going to try to see what I can dig up. But yeah. <laughs> Did did anyone notice that the the car that they keep shilling in the movie the sucks nine thousand yeah yep. or six thousand but yeah it's it's sucks s u x and I mean it's it's so perfect it just underlines the whole like consumerist ridiculous the absolute most ridiculous sides of of capitalism because they advertise the car during the movie it's like. The ad's got a dinosaur in it. The, they had the movie, to make a whole stop motion commercial with a dinosaur right? to do this. The movie, the, the, in the commercial, they mentioned that the car gets like three miles a gallon, but it's got a huge engine and leather <laughs> seats and air conditioning. Like, just perfect. It's like, this is exactly what, and like, it's perfect timing. America was experiencing a bubble economy during the late eighties. Um, so was most of the rest of the free world. There was a lot of money going around. This is like peak time for, for the, the Wall Street investors. The movie Wall Street came out around this time. People were making huge money. The the luxury car industry was at an absolute peak. Companies like Mercedes and Rolls Royce were selling cars at a way faster rate than it happened before. And then all of a sudden, two or three years later, early nineties, the economy collapsed on itself and things got horrible again. Um, so it was very very interesting that they were sort of commenting on that. Yeah. To the point of uh, the SUX gets three miles to the gallon. Uh, right. When the guy is holding uh, the mayor hostage, he's like, "I want a, yeah. I want a car, something with like really shitty gas, gas mileage, right?" And then he asks for one of those. <laughs> hey, what about cruise control? Right. Yeah, we can get that for you. <laughs> we'll even throw in a bomb pop. Right. God, it's so and- funny to think about. One tiny little ask, just real quick. I should have mentioned it when I was talking about Rob Boughton, but they chose him to do some of the effects and costuming work on this because his previous or one of his previous projects prior to this had been uh, Carpenter's version of The Thing. So that's that's how fucking good this guy is. I mean, that movie's effects are incredible. Yeah. You know? Yeah, Legendary. this is some of the best yeah. prosthetic shit ever. Absolutely. The, the, the alien that consumes the dogs is still one of the most disturbing things on film, I think. Really oh horrible. Yeah. Well, let's do some ratings. I'm going to take it first. 
This is of course on any rating scale we want and I'm gonna go the, t the easy route, I'm gonna go one through 10. I'm gonna give it 8.5. I'd buy that for a dollar out of 10. <laughs> I was gonna use that rating system. Oh. <laughs> he frequently steals mine too, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, the thing with RoboCop is it has a lot to say, but also on the surface, it's like a fun action sci-fi movie. Yeah. And I, I was trying to explain this to my wife. I said, we're going to do a podcast on RoboCop. Do you want to watch it with me? And her immediate response is no. But I was like, well, you might actually like this movie. I didn't. I couldn't get her to watch it with me, but <laughs> I tried to explain why and how like this movie isn't the B movie that it sounds like, or it's not the Robocop three that you might Ugh. like the Robocop sequels. I feel are what you would think if you'd never seen Robocop, but you've seen like pictures of them and stuff. And someone says, Oh, what's Robocop. I think that's more of what the sequels are. Some of the social commentary made it into two, but not as much by the time you get to three, it's completely gone. This movie yeah. I think is pretty smart though. Is yeah. it not? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, yeah. I don't know. It's a fun time. It has great casting, really good, like practical effects, R really good at some points, especially with the mutant man and the uh, RoboCop's face when it's revealed. Yeah, I don't know. We we've gushed over it for a long time, but it eight point five out of ten, maybe even a nine. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. My ratings are wildly inconsistent. <laughs> Fucking Ebert over here. Josh, you go. All right. Uh, I don't use the term perfect often in a serious context but this to me is like the perfect film so i'm gonna give it 10 bitches leave out of 10 <laughs> bitches leave the sarcasm behind the entire film the prosthetic work the fucking line delivery from peter weller is just fucking top notch everybody's performance is fucking flawless in my opinion like i said this is a fucking perfect movie for me Nice. Steve, I know you're not going to give this one a super high rating, but what do you got to say? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be horrible. I'm going to rate this movie on a scale of 1 to 10 cybernetically enhanced police officers. And uh, you know what? I'm 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 going to give I'm going to go with Josh on this one. I was tempted to go with a 9, but I I'm just going to go ahead and give it a 10 like Josh did. I mean, it's it's hard for anything in the real world to actually be perfect, but they managed to blend social commentary, a philosophical view on what it is to be human, and a B-action movie into one product in a way that actually came out basically perfect. And they could have easily ruined it. There's any number of things about it that could have been fucked up. It, 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 it achieved in every way what it set out to be. It, it was a social commentary and a philosophical view on, on what it is to be human and a B-action movie and an A-action movie and just a fun romp all at once. I, I agree with what you said, Corey. You can watch this movie from either perspective. You just want to watch this as a movie about a robot cop who shoots people up, fine. You can do that. You don't need to think about the other stuff. If you want to watch it on a deeper level, though, you can. And that's what makes it so brilliant. Because most most action movies, especially mid-late 80s era, like, look at what Schwarzenegger was doing at this time. There's nothing to think about in those movies. Here, here's, here's a sort of good guy who's willing to be violent. Here are the bad guys. Here's an hour and a half of him blowing the bad guys up. And when we're done, he'll, he'll have won. It, it, it's just, it's really a perfect movie at what it is. It's the fact that it's held up this well, the fact that people still love it the way they do, the fact that, uh, what, 23 years? No, more than that. You know, uh, 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 since it's been, since it was produced, people still want to talk about it and watch it and see panels with the actors and the directors 
talking about it. Buy $50 Blu-ray packages that have nine hours worth of bonus features in them. I mean, like, it, it really is quite an achievement. There's very little else like this cinematically. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also wanted to ask you, Steve, how many versions of RoboCop do you have? <laughs> Tell me about your RoboCop collection. I think I'm down to four at the moment. It's not that bad. Um, you know, I've got the I've got the Criterions on Laserdisc and DVD. What's really interesting about those ones, I think, is just this one point. But the Criterion releases are the only two that have ever presented this film in the aspect ratio it was actually meant to be presented in. I was going to um, ask you about what's the correct aspect ratio. One point six six to one. <laughs> um, it, it was just the actual number. Uh, they they shot it wider than that, but how you how you trim and frame during post has a huge effect on on things like character presence in a shot. The more cropped the shot becomes, the more central whoever's standing in the middle of it is. And they really wanted to go sort of John Wayne Western style with this and have Robo being end up being the centerpiece in every shot that he was in. And likewise shots with Ed 209 or shots of the city or, or, or whatever. So they shot the movie, I think on prime lenses with a standard gate, they would have ended up pretty close to a 185 to one aspect ratio if it's not actually where they shot it. And um, they trimmed it down to 166 to one for the release. And that's, that's where Verhoeven apparently wanted it. Um, the Criterions are the only home video releases that have it there though. All the others, including the, the Arrow edition, which is the, the newest, most special edition version of this film, are all all printed at 185. And um, Verhoeven has apparently given his blessing, but it's not the, the aspect ratio he wanted the movie shown at. So I've got those two. I've got the Arrow release. I've got one Blu-ray copy I, I owned already from from MGM. And I've had other copies over the years that I've sold. But yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm at four right now. <laughs> and this is just of the original. You'll, uh, do you own any of the sequels or the remake? I've got I've got two. I've got a couple of copies of two. One on um, I had I had a DVD. I've got a Blu-ray copy and a Laserdisc copy of two. I don't own any copies of three or the remake. Those those I don't think will ever be joining my collection. I do this with the Batman films too. In fact, I had a huge argument with a friend of mine about this because we both consider ourselves sort of completionists, but he's even more compulsive about it than I am. We're like, I will out of the original four Batman films, the two Burton's, the two Schumacher's, I will only purchase the two Burton films. I will buy them all a cart. So I do not have to take the box set. That's got Schumacher's two films in it. Cause I don't want them. I hate them. <laughs> and um, this other friend of mine is always arguing with me about it. It's like, you're not really a completionist. You should want Schumacher's versions too. I'm like, I'm not, but I will never watch them. I refuse to watch them. The only time I will ever watch those films again is for this. <laughs> I consider myself a minor completionist completionist but i would never own robocop 3 exactly that's the thing i just i don't like it i don't find there to be anything special about it aside from the fact that it's terrible and it's connected to the other two movies so i will own a bad movie if i think there's some like cinematic or historical reason to have it but not not this one no (laughs) check out big dumb movie podcast on batman forever steve loves that movie i love it secretly loves it that's really like that and that and uh batman and robin like my my only viewings from this point forward will be for this podcast or otherwise i'm never watching them again (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this episode has been a lot of fun josh where can people find you our listeners you can find me at my YouTube channel, Review Inc., or uh, you can type Review Dude, D O O D. And I just make fun of movies, so come check them out. <laughs> it's good, too. He's and what's good the latest it. one you got going? Uh, the latest one I got is uh, Ford Fairlane. My longest review, which is like almost 30 minutes, it's a couple seconds shy of being a flat 30 minutes, 
I put a lot of time and effort into yep. it. You finally got it on YouTube. What was that? The, I mean, there were some struggles with getting this on YouTube, right? Holy shit. I, I guess fucking Andrew Dice Clay is way broker than, than I originally <laughs> thought because every attempt I uh, had, I, I attempted to upload this thing like at least 10 times over the course of two days and every time it was automatically blocked. It's so crazy to me that they can block someone's review of a movie. Like, what the fuck is your problem? I didn't upload the movie. Right. By the tenth <laughs> time, I was getting flagged for my own footage. Even That's our ridiculous. podcast has gotten our shit taken down before. Yeah, you've told me. It's yeah. like, come on. Like, I didn't show any of the movie. Just shut up. <laughs> yeah, real shit. Like, the funny thing is when I get visual... Andrew Dice Clay. You should think that guy at this point would be happy to have anyone still mentioning his name. He was Pussy. in the stars. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you the listeners, if you're listening to us on YouTube, which we love, clearly... Give us a thumbs up. Leave us a comment. On Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review if you do enjoy what you hear. We're also now on SoundCloud. Nice. Uh, not a lot of people have been listening to us there yet because we're still pretty new on that platform, but if that's what you use, you can check us out there. If you want to write in, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. And that's it for this show. We love you guys. Ahoy hoy, everyone. Coming with me.